This is officially episode number five on Lordship, Salvation versus Free Grace. Now, usually when we talk about the whole conversation that goes around that, fruit comes up. Fruit comes up. And everyone wants to make fruit fit into the equation of salvation a different way. For instance, the Lordship, Salvation side of things, which I used to hold to, will say, hey, salvation equals or faith equals salvation plus good works. And so fruit in the Lordship salvation mind, good fruit is not the, the reason we're saved, but the result of our salvation. Good fruit is not the root, right, but the fruit. It's literally what it's called. And so the, the free grace side of things will say, uh, fruit is not guaranteed. Any amount of fruit, any degree of fruit, any kind of fruit, for just because you're a believer, doesn't mean good fruit in its, it, at all is guaranteed in any capacity. If so, then we're saying, or we might end up trusting in our fruit or in our works instead of just believing in Jesus alone. And so they're really careful about that. Not to make the emphasis what you can do and what you can't do, but to make it all about what Christ has done for you. And so this conversation, I don't want this to be about what we should be doing. I don't want this to be, here's what we should be doing. Rather, like as I was going into this, I thought, let's just focus on the fact that God really wants to do things through his people. Let's magnify him. Let's stand in awe of the fact that the God of the universe wants to do certain things through me, through you, through his people. Let's enjoy that. Rather than putting requirements and conditions and deadlines and well, how much and how far and what if, let's just enjoy the fact that the living God wants to work through us and partner with us um, when it comes to his work in the world. It's fantastic, man. And so here's where we're going today. Just a brief outline. And I'm going to do my best to, to hold true to this. We'll see. We'll see. Um, we're going to reference John 15 again because yesterday, I, th I think we did a good enough job of establishing what abiding is. I think we've determined so far that in John 15, it's not an unbeliever versus a believer, or it's not a believer who's fruitful versus a believer who is unfruitful, but rather it's a believer, a fruitful one, versus an unbeliever, a barren one. And so we're going to go back to John 15, and we're going to establish in, with absolute certainty, who is the fruitless branch? Who are the fruitless branches in John 15? Number two, we're going to define fruit in scripture, because a lot of people define fruit wrong, and that's why they get frustrated and overwhelmed and confused, and stressed, and anxious, and worried, and spiritually insecure, and maybe that's you. We're going to look at all the agricultural parables, because Jesus uses a lot of parables that use agricultural uh, language because of the world that he's in, because of the world that his audience is in, because of what's familiar and what they know about. And so we're going to look at all those different parables that specifically reference agriculture, how it relates to fruit and the barren in John 15. We're going to look at, throughout scripture, that good fruit can be the lips, what comes from the lips and the mouth. The fruit can be the lifestyle and the actions of a person. The fruit can be the results of one's decision. So when you sow, you reap, right? You reap what you sow. And then I'll look at, at the end, two rebuttal scriptures that the free grace individual uh, typically brings up. Uh, the free grace extremist, I'll say. The free grace extremist usually uh, brings up these two scriptures. And so I want to like just point them out and talk through them and, and um, hopefully make sense of them. All right, here we go. John 15. Let's go there. 
John 15. Let me know if the screen is good. Let me know if you guys can see it and it's actually scrolling. All right. Let's go. To be clear, because I wasn't as clear as I wanted to be yesterday, this is the frustrating thing about looking back at things in hindsight, is there are so many things I wanted to clarify. So many things I wish I would have explained better. And so let me be very clear and upfront about yesterday's message. We talked about the, the, the fruitless branches that are thrown into the fire. And I believe, biblically, contextually, historically, that the main group of people Jesus has in mind that he's referring to in John 15 is unbelieving, fruitless, rebellious, national Israel. I believe that's who's mainly in mind in John 15 as the fruitless branches. I don't believe that they are the only fruitless branches that exist. I do believe they are an archetype for anyone who would follow in their footsteps and be rebellious, unbelieving, and fruitless just as national Israel was. So uh, let, let, me, let me make my case. Okay, John chapter 15, verse 2. It says, every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? So that it can bear more fruit, right? So God treats the fruitful branches by pruning. That's a good thing. It's not a punishment. It's actually a reward. And then the branches that bear zero fruit, it's not like they didn't bear enough or they didn't bear this amount. It's they didn't bear any fruit. And they're actually thrown into the fire. They're taken away. Now, usually when people look at John 15 too, they get really hung up on this phrase. This is why so many people read John 15 and they go, this is talking about a fruitless believer versus a fruitful believer. Because look, the branch that does not bear fruit, it's still in. Jesus says, I'm the vine, the father's the vine dresser. That branch is still in him. The same thing will be said in Romans 11 of, of Israel nationally. Okay, and I'm going to go through this. So by the end of this, I think you will be thoroughly convinced that verse 2 is not talking about someone who is spiritually, positionally in Christ through faith, but someone who has a degree of connection to him. And I believe it's going to be mainly a national, heritage, ethnic kind of descent from Abraham as it relates to the Messiah. Okay, and so I think this is mainly Israel, the nation. Let me put up my point up front and then scripture. And there's a, they have a degree of connection to the Messiah, didn't they? mainly through the unique benefits of being national Israel. And they're gonna, you're going to see that they're removed because of unbelief. Now you talk about the unique benefits of the nation of Israel. That was not to the exclusion of the other, of the other nations. That was supposed to be for their benefit. God blesses and chooses the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the rest of the nations, to bring them in, to bring them to the living God. And they didn't do that. So in Romans 9, it talks about the Israelite people and to them belong the adoption, the glory. This is not in a spiritual sense. This is like when God uh, brings Israel out of Egypt and he goes, this is my firstborn, right? Or the, or, or the glory, which I would say references the Ark of the Covenant, the temple. The covenant that God gave them, whether the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Sinai covenant is mainly in mind. The giving of the law. That was a unique blessing to the nation of Israel. They knew the ways of God. The worship, the ability to bring sacrifices and worship the Lord. The promises given to the patriarchs. That was for them because they descended from Abraham. At least that's what they thought. Because we descend from Abraham physically. All the promises made to him and the patriarchs are for us. And to them belong the patriarchs from their race ultimately is the Christ. Who I've actually done a study on Romans 9. You can go check it out. Um, 
it's more about like disproving the Calvinistic view of Romans 9 because the Calvinist theology makes Romans 9 all about God chooses some to not have faith and chooses others to have faith. And it's just ridiculous in my opinion. But I've gone through Romans 9 in depth explaining all these things and how the spiritual substance is in Christ. Now, those are the unique benefits of national Israel. Physical, ethnic, national Israel had a connection to Jesus. Romans 11 will tell us that they were actually disconnected. You know why? That assumes at one point they were what? Connected. Not that they believed. Not that they had faith in Messiah. But they had a degree of connection. The temples removed in AD 70, which I believe is the main tearing off of the branches. Like the, the, the full substance of that is kind of typified through the uh, temple being destroyed by Rome in AD 70. So watch, Romans eleven seventeen. If some of the branches were broken off, and these are Israelites. He's going to explain how they are actually unbelieving Israelites, but they're Israelites nonetheless. If some of the branches were broken off and you, believing non-Jews, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, right? The others being believing Israelites, and now you share in the nourishing root. This is going to be crucial to the parable of the sower. There was a nourishing root that we are connected to, Jesus being the vine, through which we draw spiritual nutrients, through which we have his identity, through which we have righteousness and right standing with God, through which we're safe and secure because of the root that we're connected to. And we share in that with believing Israelites. That's going to be crucial to the parable of the sower because you're going to have one soil, the rocky soil, that doesn't develop a root. We share in the nourishing root of the olive tree don't be arrogant toward the branches that were broken off. Sounds like John 15. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. John 15. He's the vine, we're the branches. Then you will say, well, you know, <laughs> branches were broken off, so I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off, but not because you were awesome. It's because of their unbelief. This is key. How was a branch ever connected? How was an Israelite physically ever connected to the Messiah if they never believed? If unbelief, and I don't believe this is like a, they believed at some point and they don't long, it's unbelief. And I'll show you why. Believe me, everything I'm saying, I will support with scripture. You stand fast through what? Faith. Why are we grafted in and the unbelieving Israelite is not? Because they're unbelieving. And we have faith. So don't become proud. <laughs> Fear. If God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So the branches were broken off. Why? Unbelief. Now I'll take you to Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27. In verse 6, it says, In days to come, Jacob, that being the nation of Israel, shall take root. Remember the root we saw in Romans 11? Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with what? John 15, fruit. 
Has he struck them as he struck? Now, by, by the way, this comes before Jesus. So this is what, 700-ish years prior to Christ actually entering into the world? And this is what the Lord declares about the future of the nation of Israel. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, um, by exile you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Let me take you to verse 10. The fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken, like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. This is referring to the nation of Israel. When its bows or branches are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. What's being put in the fire? Well, the broken branches that have dried up. The dry, fruitless, broken branches being the unbelieving Israelites. Well, that's quite a stretch. No, read it in context. And the fire that is made for them, right, refers to, I would say mainly, the judgment God is bringing upon them. Now, let me take you to Jeremiah 11. I don't want to spend too much time here. I'm just trying to show you that when Jesus is giving the, the message in John 15 to his apostles, what's mainly in mind is fruitless, unbelieving Israel. That doesn't mean it's only about them. I said it's mainly about them. And it's interesting that Jerusalem will be burned. Um, the temple will be burned down in AD 70. Fire everywhere, just like at the exile, just like when Nebuchadnezzar would come through, just like when Assyria would come through, you know, in the Old Testament. Fire, a lot of times, symbolizes the judgment of God. Can we say that's for certain in John 15? Not yet, but I think we'll get there. Jeremiah 11, don't pray for this people. This is interesting. This is one of the only times you'll see God tell a prophet not to pray for someone. Okay. Um, uh, is this the right scripture? Yes, it is. Okay. Don't lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf. Their behalf being the people of Israel. Uh, or specifically Judah, Jerusalem. Either way, it's the part of the nation of Israel. God says, I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. I will not listen. Why? God has decided the judgment of their sin. The consequences are coming. Whether they cry out or not, they can't stop it. They can't prevent the judgment that's already been initiated by their own sin and let out by God. But they can still choose to change their mind about their sin and all that stuff. When they call to me in the time of their trouble, what right has my beloved in my house? When she's done many vile deeds. Can, can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exalt? Now watch. The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. Wow. Once, that means they no longer are. The fruitfulness, the green olive treeness <laughs> is gone. Now God's going to call them something different because of the fact that over time, They've become rebellious, idolatrous, sexually immoral, and just rejected, outright rejected the Lord. Now watch, with the roar of a tempest, a great tempest, he will set fire to it. 
Fire, once again, is judgment. I don't think I have to convince people of that. And it's branches that used to be fruitful, that are supposed to be fruitful, and especially in Isaiah's day, have grown dry. With each generation, it seems like people, especially as kings come and go, and as prophets come and go with each generation, seems to be a different story with Israel. But the branches will be consumed. And then you get to Romans 11, and they're broken off. Why? Unbelief. Now let me show you something really interesting. In Exodus 14, the generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt, this is what is said about them. Okay, think about the Israelites that came out of Egypt, saw the hand of God, saw the mighty signs and wonders, saw Pharaoh and the Egyptians get just decimated. It says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. This is right after the Red Sea scene, if indeed you can call it the Red Sea. So the people feared the Lord, right? This is the generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt, mind you. And they believed in what? in the Lord and his servant Moses. Hold on to that. You go, ah, they must have uh, faith and be like a part of the faith of Abraham. Not so. This is right after the Red Sea, but immediately, I think there's other texts that indicate, you can quote me if I'm wrong, but I believe there are other texts that indicate even while they're in Egypt, even as they're leaving Egypt, they're still holding on to idols and committing idolatry, which is why you have the golden calf scene. Numbers 14, 11, the Lord says to Moses, so Moses uh, is still, um, I believe this is the same generation of people. I'm trying to think. Israel, did, when Moses told these words, they rose and went up to the highest. Here we are, place. Moses said, why are you transgressing? Yes. Haha. So this proves my point. Good. Um, this is before Israel decides we don't want to go into the promised land. Therefore, it's the same generation of, the, of people that came out of Egypt. In Numbers 14, 11, the Lord says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? in spite of all the signs I've done among them. Therefore, if God is speaking of the signs he's done among the people, these are the same people that saw the signs and wonders, not just in the wilderness, but in Egypt and at the Red Sea and all around, the manna, the water, all of it coming out of the rock. They've seen the signs. And this is what the Lord says, how long will they not believe in me? I will strike them with pestilence, disinherit them, and make you a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses intercedes and goes, whoop. Pause. Go to Hebrews chapter 3. This is what's said of that same generation. As the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, this is the New Testament, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What's the rebellion? On the day of testing in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. So this is the same generation that came out of Egypt. Not the children, the adults that saw the signs, that crossed the Red Sea, that saw the manna, that saw the water come out of the rock, that are said in Exodus 14, they feared and believed in the Lord. I was provoked with that generation and I said, they always go astray 
in their hearts. I thought they believed. Is that a contradiction? I don't believe so. They have not known my ways. It doesn't say they used to and they forgot. It doesn't say, well, they, they were followed. They always go astray in their heart. That's why Hebrews 8 fixes the heart issue. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers. Like this for you. Be very careful. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Whoa. Why couldn't they enter into the promised land? It's right here. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. That's the disobedience. That's the sin. That's the rebellion here in verse 16. Same generation. And you go, I'm not convinced. You will be. Jude, verse 5. He says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. Knew it. Knew it. Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Afterward, what did he do? He destroyed those who did not believe. So this is not to say there are none who have faith among the nation of Israel. Specifically, we see Caleb and we see Joshua among that wicked nation that had faith and got to inherit the promised land with the children of the wicked generation, right? Because the parents eventually fade out, 40 years pass, the kids are raised up, they know the Lord, Joshua leads them, and you got Caleb and, and Joshua. So there are people who believe. There are people who believe. But Exodus 14 tells us they, the people, believed. And yet, Numbers 14, Hebrews 3, and Jude tells us they didn't believe. They actually always went astray. They rejected the Lord in rebellion. So what kind of believing is going on in Exodus 14? It's the kind of distinction I made in the first, first episode. What's wrong with my tongue today? First? Good Lord. First episode on faith. We talked about that distinction between actual trust in the Lord and a mere impression with or acknowledgement of the facts, however you want to qualify that, there is a difference. There is a difference. If you want to call it head faith versus heart faith, I'm not sure I can get on board with that fully, but I do believe there is a kind of said, I, I agree with the facts, a, a confession maybe, I don't know, but it's not actual substantial in the heart and in the soul. It's just a mere confession or a mere intellectual agreement. I believe there is a clear distinction in scripture of that. So most of the parables we're about to look at have to do with Israel, national Israel. Like what Jesus is about to say, and this is all about fruit, most of the parables he's gonna use about fruit directly apply to unbelieving, wicked, rebellious, national Israel. And the fact that they were fruitless, which I'm gonna tell you up front, fruitlessness is iconic of unbelievers. It just is, there's no way to escape it. And I know this frustrates people. And I know this, this gets people in a, in a head spin in it. All, I, all I'm trying to do is tell you what the scriptures say. I can't consider how people will receive this. I can't consider what it'll make people think. I, I can't not tell you what the word of God says just because of a certain reaction that might happen. I'm gonna trust God with that. I'm gonna let him work it out. And I'm going to tell you what scripture clearly says. We're going to define fruit in scripture now as we go through the parables that relate to national Israel in John 15, I believe. From Genesis to Joshua, the actual writings in, in the Old Testament. 
you're going to see fruit consistently refers to what is reproduced. And, and most often from Genesis to Joshua. After that, you start seeing fruit kind of change form a little bit. But from Genesis to Joshua, fruit most, like 99% of the time, refers to the vegetation of the land, offspring of the womb for animals or humans, right? So one of those three things. So in other words, fruit is what is produced naturally after its own kind. After its own kind. And I, I think it's helpful up front to say this, whether good or bad, everyone is always bearing fruit. You're either a good tree bearing good fruit or a bad tree bearing bad fruit, but the point is everyone is bearing fruit. And uh, we can get into the whole conversation of if I have a little bad fruit, does that make me a bad tree? No, no. <sighs> well, how much is enough until you're a bad? Stop, stop it, stop it. Everyone's always bearing fruit, just know that. So this isn't a question of, am I, am I going to produce good fruit for sure? Rather, are believers guaranteed to produce any amount of good fruit? The Hebrew word for fruit, peri, like Perry the platypus, can be translated as offspring, reward, produce, results, or the product of something. The Greek word for fruit, karpos, can be translated as fruit generally relating to vegetation, sometimes animals, the deeds, the actions, or the result of a decision, okay? So no matter what context it is, animals, actual vegetation, the fruit of a decision, the action I've committed, which is the fruit of my heart, fruit is always what is produced naturally after its own kind. Galatians chapter 5 is a good, I, I guess, picture of what fruit really is. And this is not necessarily getting into what fruit is quite yet. We're still exploring, is national Israel in mind in John 15? And I believe so. Most of the parables Jesus gives about national, wicked, rebellious Israel, the unbelievers at least, relate to John 15. Look at Galatians 5. It says the fruit of the Spirit, what is produced by the Spirit, what is consistent with the nature and character of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all these things. And against such, there's no law. Now, someone is going to emphasize, more of the free grace individual, He's going to emphasize, hey, uh, don't forget, you have the choice to be led by the Spirit or walk by the Spirit. So the fruit here at the bottom is not a guaranteed automatic thing. You have this free will decision to still choose, will I walk by the Spirit in this moment? Or will I be led by the Spirit in this moment? Okay, I agree. Let's keep moving. As you're going to see in Colossians 1, the gospel itself... The good news of Jesus itself, it produces fruit. Colossians 1.6, it says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you've heard. Colossian church, when did you guys hear about the hope laid up for you in heaven? Well, in, in the word of the truth, in the gospel. There's like a pretty clear definition of what the gospel is, or at least includes. It should include, when preached well, the gospel will include, hey, there's hope laid up for you in the place where God dwells and he's coming to be with his people. Now, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, 
it is bearing fruit and it's increasing. Pause. If you go back to Isaiah's prophecy, God tells Israel, you will fill the whole world with fruit. Could this be mainly about the Messiah or is there a time coming where Israel will indeed do this in consistency with the gospel? Either way, the gospel is doing that. And it does start with the Jewish people, those who believe. Then it goes to Samaritans. Then it goes to the the non-Jews, right? And so the gospel is bearing, producing fruit and, and it's increasing. So the bearing fruit here, I wouldn't say isn't connected to the increasing, but is distinct from it still. It's bearing fruit and then there's also an increase that is coming, I would say, from the fruit. The fruit is bringing an increase. As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So understanding, right here, by Paul, hearing results or understanding proceed, comes after hearing. You can't understand something you haven't actually become aware of, right? So we hear the gospel, we be, come in contact with the gospel, then you understand, wow, in truth, the grace of God within that, you respond in faith, it's a free will decision, and then the gospel apparently is gonna bear fruit and increase. Well, that says the whole world, and you can't qualify what that is. Sure, I'm just letting you know that if you go down to verse 10, it says, from the day we heard about it, we, we haven't stopped praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding in order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So this is talking about lifestyle, right? Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit, right? In every good work. So works have to do with fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. There, I believe, is the increase we saw in verse 6. The gospel not only bears fruit, produces after its own kind. I would say there's a lot that's packaged into that. You'll have to watch not yesterday's episode, but episode 3, where we talk about the new heart, the new nature, the new identity, the new standing. All that, I would say, is the best way to sum up what the gospel produces Uh, in the life of a person. But also, there's an increase in the knowledge of God alongside the bearing fruit in the works, which is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, some of you will say, yeah, this isn't guaranteed. This is just optional. It's just what God desires. It's not expected in terms of this is guaranteed to happen for all who believe. Okay, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. I honor your rebuttals. I do. I don't just toss them. I'm going to do my best to address them. We're going to the parable of the sower now. We're going to the parable of the sower. What you're about to see now is that the parable of the sower best captures, and not even like, this isn't the only parable that does, it just does it the best. It best captures what the gospel does, what what God is looking for, what is produced through the gospel, how that corresponds to John 15. Um, John says, can we pause and recognize Epaphras for a moment? That guy didn't get enough book time. (sighs) Preach it, John. Preach it. Let him know. Epaphras. Name your dog or your hamster or all five of your kids. Epaphras. Let's get some tribute to him. 
Matthew 12:33. We're going to work our way to the parable of the sower to have full contextual understanding. Okay? And then I promise we'll look at every instance of fruit in Matthew so that no one can accuse me. You wrongly defined fruit. You took that out of context. I know. I know it's coming. It's been coming all week. Matthew 12:33. Matthew 12:33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. This comes right after the Pharisees decide, you know what? We just saw Jesus cast out a demon. Probably the devil. Yeah, probably the devil. Yeah, it's probably the devil. And they all agree. And Jesus goes, oh my gosh, you really believe like the, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand, guys. If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're, if you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. That's what they're doing. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're scattering. What falsehood, deception, lies. Bad fruit, you might say. The seed that will produce bad fruit in other people. And mainly, it's the word they're speaking against the Holy Spirit. Their confession about what Jesus is doing, what the Spirit of God is doing, is quite revealing of their heart condition. Right? So their fruit is bad. Their confession about Christ and the work of the Spirit is bad because they are bad trees. Meaning, they reject Him. They don't believe. You don't become good by merit and working and striving and laboring. You become good by simply believing God makes you good through his son. That's it. You are good when you believe. You are bad if you don't believe. And then the fruit that is produced mainly in this context is the confession about Jesus is going to be quite revealing of whether you're a bad or good tree. Do you see it? So the tree is known by its fruit. So just because fruit here in its context, in this literary in this literary context, just because fruit is referring to the confession of someone's mouth doesn't mean fruit is only that. That's the mistake that an extreme free grace individual will make. Is they'll say because fruit often refers to the fruit of lips that comes from the heart, therefore we can all, no, just, just read the context and you'll be able to discover what does he mean by fruit here? We know that tree, uh, fruit in every context, right, is going to reveal um, where it came from, right? All fruit comes from something. You brood of vipers. That's what John called them. Don't call your mom that. How can you speak good when you are evil? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the heart overflows through the mouth Specifically regarding, hey, what do you think about Jesus? What the mouth says is quite revealing of where the heart is. Now, I will say this. Confession alone does not guarantee any kind of salvation. You have false confessions in Scripture. Matthew 7, uh, I'm, I'm assuming Judas would be a good example because we can only suppose he said something that was like, yeah, I'm with Jesus. Maybe not. Um, Trying to think. Did I go through this in the first episode? I think I did. We talked about false confession. So confession doesn't necessitate faith. Therefore, faith can actually be without verbal confession. Meaning, I don't need to say it out loud to really solidify that faith and get saved. That's not a part of me getting saved. But eventually, the fruit of the lips, I believe, will testify to the inward faith. So he says, you are evil. Not because of what they say, 
but what they say proves that they are evil. He's saying they can't speak good about him because of the fact they're evil. Their heart, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, right? And the evil person out of his evil treasure, boo, brings forth evil. Okay? I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. By your words, you'll be justified. Now, does this mean in order to be right with God, I need to say a set of words or declare something? I don't believe so. I don't believe Romans 10 is going to tell us that the inward reality of faith um, isn't complete without some kind of verbal confession. I believe we're saved through faith. I do believe what will be produced from that saving faith where I'm already secure, what will be produced from that is a right confession at some point. What if they never do? I don't know. I don't really, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what God thinks. By your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. I think this goes back to Proverbs 18, which we will address, but I'm just trying to get to parable of the sower. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Must have been nice having them in kindergarten. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. You guys are evil. No sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah gives us a sign of the Messiah? Yeah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. He's not saying this generation is believing and righteous and they're just making a mistake. They're condemned. And the men of Nineveh are not. You want to know why? Go read Jonah 3. They repented. Right here. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, look, something greater than Jonah is here. You guys are missing it. The queen of the south. Remember the queen of Sheba that went to go see Solomon? She will rise up at the judgment with this generation. You know what she's going to do? Condemn it. Hmm. If she's standing in the place of actually doing the, you know, standing at odds with the unbelieving generation here, did she come to believe in the God of Israel? She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon's here. Jesus is saying, I'm the greater Solomon. I'm the greater Jonah. I'm going to do greater things and have greater wisdom than they do. And you're missing it. How depraved and evil and unbelieving do you have to be if Nineveh was like, you know what, Jonah's right, let's repent. Or if the queen of Sheba was like, I gotta go hear the wisdom of Solomon. And you guys are seeing something better and you're not believing. How wicked do you have to be? When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. It finds none. This is not commentary on <laughs> demonology necessarily. He is describing what unclean spirits do, but I don't think we should develop an entire theology around this. It's to make a point. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, right, the unclean spirit finds the house empty, swept, put in order. Like, hey, no one's come to live here. It's just the way I left it. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. Pay attention to that. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. What's he saying? Well, 
there are a lot of things that could be said about what he's saying. <laughs> Number one, they're gonna be held more accountable because of the fact that Jesus was physically in their midst and they denied him and crucified him and lived in rebellion and died in unbelief. So it's gonna be a lot worse for them because of the fact Jesus came and cleansed, you know, the people of demons and removed demons. Also, um, supposedly, historically, in Josephus' accounts of uh, AD 70, Rome comes in. Uh, supposedly, I haven't read this myself, but what I've heard, and you can go research this, is that before Rome even went in, um, Israel, at least Jerusalem, was in such chaos and uh, absolute madness. People are killing each other, and it's as if more demons had come in than Jesus had even cast out. Like Jesus removes unclean spirits from their midst, but then once he's gone and ascends, it's like the demons now um, come back in full force, especially when Rome comes and finds them. That's the account of Josephus, you can go look it up. But the point is, they are held more accountable and they're more evil, the last state of that person is worse, this generation has more reason to believe and they're not, which makes them more evil and more, you might say there's degrees of punishment just as there are degrees of rewards, I believe. While he was still speaking to the people, his mother and his brother stood outside. And we're leading up to the parable of the sower, okay? Asking to speak with him, but he replied to the man who told him, this would be really weird by the way, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? The, the people who sent me, Jesus, your mom and your brothers. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. And the disciples are like, I'm not a mom. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven, essentially is my family. The family of God, those who belong to him, are those who do the will of the Father, which in John 6 is to believe. Now we get to the parable of the sower. With all that in mind, that generation's more accountable, more evil, more unbelieving, has more reason to believe, makes a poor confession about Jesus, bears bad fruit because they're bad trees. Now we get to the parable Jesus brings. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat beside the sea. Great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and he sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, beach party, and he told them many things in parables. And he said, listen, a farmer, a sower, went out to sow seed, plant seed. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. So we have seeds that fall along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground. Boo, rocky ground. Where they didn't have much soil. Immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. So there's no depth, no root. No room for the, the, the seed to actually take root. Does that make sense? I think you can see where I'm going. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, why? Because there was no room for the seed to actually take root. 
they withered away. Remember the withering branches of fruitless Israel in Jeremiah 11, Isaiah 27, um, Romans 11. I think it makes sense that John 15 is touching on that. Other seeds fell among thorns. So we have the thorny soil. And the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil. Now we have the good soil. Ba -ba -ba. And it produced grain. Very important. Some, what? A hundredfold? Some, 60. Some, 30. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, no one comes up to Jesus to ask for the interpretation except the disciples, the 12. They come and they go, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, look, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. To you. To them it has not. Let me make this abundantly clear. There are two groups of people. There are those who know and understand the secrets of the kingdom. And the disciples are going to come to understand because they ask. Not because they inherently knew it. They're going to go, we don't understand too. And Jesus will tell them. There are those who don't know the secrets of the kingdom. They don't understand. They don't want to. They don't ask. To the one who has, same group. And by the way, this is not limited to the apostles. This is to the one who has knowledge. More will be given. Sounds like the parable of the talents. And he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not. So again, there's two groups of people. There are those who have, and there are those who have not. Even what he has will be taken away. Sounds like Romans 11. Broken off. Jeremiah 11. Isaiah 27. What the Israelite nation ethnically had as a connection to Jesus through their heritage to Abraham ends up being taken away. Or like Jesus says in the parable of the, of, the, of the tenants, the vineyard that was leased out, which is going to be the Israelite nation, the, the vineyard will be taken away. The kingdom will be taken away and given to a people producing its fruits. That's what he says. So even what he has will be taken away. Some translations use even what he thinks he has. That might be helpful. But either way, he, something that is had gets taken away because it doesn't amount to something at all. And I believe that here, what is taken away is the seed. Whether it's the hard path and the birds take it, whether it's the rocky ground and it just shrivels up and it's scorched and withers away, or whether it's the thorns and it's choked out, the seed has to be in mind here. So what, this, what both groups have is the seed, okay? Both groups have some degree of interaction with the seed. This is why I speak to them in parables. And here, let me say this. He will have an abundance. That's the one who has, right? And the person who has something that doesn't amount to anything God really wants, it seems like, it's taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they don't see. Hearing, they don't hear. So guess what they have? They have the ability to see. They have the ability to hear. 
but spiritual perception is lacking. Nor do they understand. You know what they don't have? They don't have understanding. This, I believe, is the main thing that is in mind. One group both have a degree of knowledge about the kingdom. Both have a, some degree of interaction with God and his kingdom. Only one group understands. And they're given to know the secrets of the kingdom. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. It says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You'll see, but you'll never perceive. Is that because of God, like, locking them under it? No, it's because they, in their own spiritual position, the unbelievers in Israel, they are incapable, or actually, you might say, unwilling to see and hear. You go, well, they're not able to. That's because they've positioned themselves like that. They're in a position to not see. You ever, like, there's something everyone else is seeing around you, but there's something obstructing you, and you're like, I can't see it. Reposition yourself, and you'll be able to see it. That's what's taking place. They're in a spiritual position of unreception. They're not willing to receive. Jesus will say this in John 5. You will indeed see, but never perceive. This people's heart has grown dull, grown. Not against their will, right? Their ears, they can barely hear. Their eyes, they have closed. Okay, so they're responsible. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with the heart. You know what Jesus says understanding happens by? It happens by the heart. We think of understanding purely on an intellectual level. So for instance, okay, me and an atheist can read the same passage. Oh, look at that, Matthew 25. We can read the same passage in Matthew 25, okay? We can both understand on the surface level what the information is saying, right? Right, Jesus walked to the sea, or Jesus gave a parable. And we can agree that we both understand the information. But information is not an end in itself. When God gives knowledge or information, it carries the spiritual seed of understanding, should someone be receptive to that. So knowledge is God's way of relaying or conveying or bringing understanding to a heart, to a mind. But it's spiritual understanding. It's what's underneath the text of scripture. It's the invisible things that can't be seen unless the spirit of God grants you understanding and insight as you're positioned and humble and receptive and willing and you're able to see what is beneath the surface. So understanding happens with the heart. Understanding happens with the heart. Okay, that's very important. And God would have turned and healed them so guess what one group has and one group doesn't? One group understands, the other group doesn't. There's not four groups of understanding and knowledge because the free grace individual and even some lordship individual, so I guess anyone on any spectrum, will make this about four different believers. Ah, you know, one believer's fruitful. The other one got distracted. The other one, you know, was just going through a hard season. The other one, no, bro. <laughs> this is, like, very clearly, by the way, Jesus clearly makes two audiences. There are some who have, some who don't. Some who understand, some who don't. And even what the people who don't understand, even what they think they have or supposedly have is taken away, that's parallel to the parable of the tenants. 
And Jesus says, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to a people bearing its fruits. How is the kingdom taken from national Israel if most of them who it's taken away from, they didn't believe? Don't you have to believe to have the kingdom? Romans 11, 9 through 11 makes sense of that. Romans 9 through 11 makes sense of how what they had was a physical heritage ethnic connection to the Messiah, right? But now that he's come and ascended and the temple's decimated, they're broken off through unbelief and it doesn't amount to anything if they don't have understanding and faith. Understanding precedes faith. So you can know the information. This, this is why I delineate between knowing that kind of believing, like I believe and agree with the facts and the spiritual insight understanding of what you claim to know. There's a difference, there really is. Blessed are your eyes they see, and your ears they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and they didn't, and to hear what you hear, and, and they didn't. So the prophets and righteous people who longed to see and hear and understand what the apostles are experiencing should magnify what they're experiencing. Now, hear then the parable of the sower, watch Jesus explain it. First, it's potty time. It's that early. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to PO Box 338, uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day, pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. You know what I love about this community is you guys are not a bunch of randos. Like everyone from our Discord fam is here. Like there's so many of you. It's so cool to just do life together and, and fellowship. And if you guys haven't joined the Discord community, Discord's an app. We're not sowing discord. Don't get too overly biblical. 
just nap. That's, that's what it's called. And we're having church on it. Um, when we think about the confession, kind of back to Matthew 12, um, confession is the fruit of faith. At least good confession verbally about Jesus, that's the fruit of faith. We often mix up the two, and it's like the confession I make verbally about Jesus is synonymous with faith. No, it's just the evidence of it already existing. I don't verbally, con this is where people get the idea of praying a prayer, which I don't believe, I don't think it's wrong. I just think you have to really be careful about how you, how you think about that. Because the, apparently, as we're gonna see this, the fruit of the mouth, the confession that is good towards Jesus, that's the fruit of faith that is already present. Let's not mix that up with faith. Moving forward, hear then the parable of the sower. Let's watch Jesus masterfully explain this. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, which is the truth of the gospel, it's the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the Messiah and his reign, and he doesn't understand it, okay? You see how one person doesn't understand? The evil one comes, snatches away what has been sown or planted in his heart. This is what was sown or planted along the path, okay? So there's one group that does not understand. It's like, and then that seed that was planted just gets taken up. Doesn't do them any good. Hello everyone on TikTok. As for what was sown or planted on rocky ground, guess what? This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a, a while. Uh, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, the word that he's received right here, right? And the word that he's heard, he hears the word. He hears the word, he receives it. Now that same word is causing trouble in his life. Well, he falls away. Immediately, he falls away. There's no battle, there's no fight, it's immediate. Pressure, I'm out. Now, I, heard, I have heard some free grace teachers say, if you go to John's gospel, it says, all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Is this receiving here, the exact kind of receiving that's there in John chapter one? In other words, anytime someone receives the word, does that mean that they believe in faith? Does receiving guarantee believing? I'm gonna let you think about that. Let me give you like a good example. In Acts chapter 17, we have the Berean Jews, okay? Here's what happens. The brothers send Paul and Silas uh, by night to Berea. When they arrive, they go into the Jewish synagogue. And by the way, I'm not denying what John 1 says. To all who received him, he gave the right to, uh, in fact, it's right here, just so we all know what scripture I'm referring to. To all who did receive him, and then John clarifies, who believed. Now, some would say the believing is synonymous with the receiving. But does believing, could believing actually come after receiving? These Jews in Berea, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Watch what they do. They received the word with all eagerness. They believed, they were saved, they're filled with the Spirit. It's not what it says. 
they were examining the scriptures daily to see if they were so. And many of them therefore believed. Chronologically, it says they received the word with all eagerness. How? Well, they begin to examine the scriptures daily. That means they have yet to come to believe. They don't believe it. They're trying to see if what Paul is saying is actually true by looking in the Old Testament. And when they do, and then they see it confirmed, and they go, what Paul said about the Messiah and Jesus of Nazareth is true, they believed. They believed. So no immediate reception of the word does not always guarantee faith, but it should lead to it. That's the hopes, is that receiving with eagerness should lead to understanding, should lead to believing, should lead to examining, looking for evidence. If you're one of those really logistical, analytical, I need evidence, you search and you go, you know what, I've come to believe. And some people don't need that, that kind of side of Christianity, the apologetics. They're like, I just believe. I, I took God at his word. Cool. But reception isn't synonymous with believing. Now, someone might say, well, this is a summary statement. They received the word with all eagerness. Here's how it looked. They examined the scriptures and they believed. I don't think so, though. I don't think so. That's just one of the things I wanted to mention. But that's not even necessary to, to make the case for these different soils not being believers. They don't have faith. This guy, watch, he hears, he receives. You know what he doesn't have, though? He's not described as having understanding, which is required to believe. If I just say gibberish and, and then say, believe in that, what are you believing in? It doesn't make sense to you. There's no understanding. And so hearing should result in understanding, right? Or reception, I guess. Hearing, then reception, understanding, faith. When I hear it, I should go, yeah, you know what? I'm open to this. That's reception. That's receiving. And then I might seek to understand it. Or maybe in that moment, I'm like, I understand. And then I believe. That's produced from that. So you can't have faith without understanding. At least, and I'm going to say it, salvific faith. Faith that produces salvation. So, this person has no root, which I would say in Romans 11, if Jesus is mainly the root that's in mind, there's no actual connection. The gospel doesn't take root. There's not enough space in the heart for it to take root. So, he falls away, but in the parable, the seed withers away. And what it produced, it just withers. It amounts to nothing. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world, this is some of you guys, the deceitfulness of riches. I got to know where any of you guys stand with Christ. I just know there's such a concern for the temporary worldly things that cause people to never get to the point where they understand and believe. They're just too busy to give God time. Choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Now, all three of those first soils have many things in common. Number one, there's no understanding. Number two, there's no fruit. Number three, 
they all have an interaction with the seed, which Jesus will say is the truth of the kingdom, the truth of the gospel. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears and understands. What did Jesus say up here? These people don't understand, but you guys have been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. And Jesus is giving them what? Understanding. They don't understand the crowds. The apostles do because they're asking for understanding. So this, again, validates the whole two categories of people here. There's, two, there's not four categories, guys. There's two categories, believing, unbelieving, and within the actual category of unbelievers, there are three ways that a person experiences or stays in unbelief. Some people, it's immediately snatched away. They don't understand at all. Some people, they have a shallow kind of surface level reception, no root. Uh, they don't understand. They don't produce fruit, you know, that kind of thing, and they fall away. Some people, and it's immediate, it's like quick, life change, behavior change, modification to my life, and then boom, life gets hard just as quickly as they received it, they leave. I didn't want this to be hard. Third ones are thorns. This one hears it, the cares of the world choke it, no fruit. The last one is sown on good soil. This is the one who hears and understands. Every other soil heard. Every other soil or heart had an experience with the truth. It was, it did, it, you know, impact them. In terms of like, one it hit, one it kind of went in, one it got choked out. They had some kind of uh, interaction with the seed. They heard. But this is the one who hears and understands. He indeed bears fruit. Why is understanding and fruit something that goes together? Why is the understanding that precedes faith and is necessary for faith, why does that always seem to be paired with fruit? Now watch, this is where I'm gonna answer the question most free grace individuals bring up almost to disprove the idea that fruit is necessary or fruit is guaranteed or however you wanna put it, okay? That good fruit will be born out of faith. They will often say, well, how much? And then they'll sit there with their mug and sip while you, you flounder. Because if I don't know how much or to what degree or how, how big of the fruit and what kind of, if I don't know, then I can't truly know I'm saved. So then they'll say, therefore, your standard of fruit required for, required to produce through faith, which I'm not even saying I require anything. I'm saying God will produce it. But they'll say, therefore, it's subjective. It's up to the person and it can't truly be validated. And then you're looking at self and hold on. What does he say the, the fruit that's yielded, does he say there's only one amount? Does he say that there's one measurement by which faith is for sure concretely established? Or does he say the reception, understanding, and the fruit that's born from that varies? He said in one case, there's 100. In another case, there's 60. In another case, there's 30. Parable of the talents. One was given 10. The other one was given, uh, or one was given five talents. The other one was given two. The other one was given one. Guess what? Two of them worked what they had. And we'll get to that. The other one did nothing with it, 
he's thrown out with the unfaithful, cut to pieces. And I've heard people say, this is a believer. Are you, what? Are you, like you're really so stuck on your view that you'll like make up stuff and see right past the clear, deny like the facts that are right in your face. You'll just deny that to, to make it fit your view. Yikes. Let's go to the parable of the weeds. Let's just keep reading. What I want you to see is that the evidence of the seed of the gospel being received, understood, and believed is that there is fruit born from it. How much seems to be up to God, seems to be up to the person's participation, seems to be up to the role you play in the body, seems to be up to all these different factors that we don't even consider because we're just looking at, well, how much? How much do I need? Who? Why are you so stuck on how much you need? Why can't you just enjoy God and watch him go to work in your life? Verse 24, that hits someone. I know that. I felt that. Verse 24, he put another parable before them, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed, planted good seed in his field. Okay, so now we're going to see the kingdom of heaven compared again to seed being planted. This time in the field, Jesus will say, is the world. Now, while his men were sleeping, the enemy came, planted seeds among the wheat, and went away. So guess who is also in the business of planting seeds? Which if the seed of the gospel from God is truth, then the seed of the enemy is going to be deception, perversion, lies. False prophets who like spit that lie. So when the plants came and they bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. So guess what? At some point throughout the growth process of both individuals, which are going to be people, there is evidence that one is not like the other. This is not just at the judgment. We see, oh, one is not like the other. This is during the growth process of one alongside the other in the world. One is not like the other. Now the servants of the master of the house came and, and they said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How, how are there weeds? The master didn't go, how dare you judge the plant based off what it looks like? Are you saying the weeds can't be believers? He goes, he, an enemy has done this. So the servants said, do you want us to go and gather them? He said, no. If you gather the weeds, you'll root up the wheat along with them. This is the judgment on the world that is coming. And I'm, I feel it in my spirit. It's near. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, hey, gather the weeds first. What's gathered first? When Jesus talks about one is taken, one is left, what's gathered first? Well, the weeds. What does not belong in the kingdom of God? What does not belong in God's new creation? What can't exist in God's new creation are the weeds. Bind them in bundles to be burned. John 15, fire, useless, weeds, fruitless branches, barren. Gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Talk about how that grows into a tree. But um, let me get to verse 34. Uh, verse 36. Then he left the crowds 
and he went into the house. And his disciples said, can you explain to us the parable of the weeds? I love this. Like they're learning that they can ask for understanding. And he said, well, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. He's the farmer in the parable of the sower. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom whom God is planting in his good earth. Like we've talked about this in the third episode, how God reformats our very DNA and nature and our very spiritual condition so that we're compatible with new creation when it comes. We are the first, you might say, following after Jesus. We're the first of new creation inwardly. And our bodies, which we will get, will be glorified and resurrected. The field is the world and the good seed are the people of God, right? The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now the harvest is the end of the age. And by the way, the weeds and the, the wheat were recognizable not at the end of the age only, but prior to that. It was clear which was what. Therefore, you can tell a tree by its fruit. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Like, take this. Listen. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom because this kingdom will be turned over to the rightful king. And when he reigns, he will remove all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the fiery furnace, the place for sinners, the condemnation, the punishment is related to the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because I've heard some take these parables and go, the weeping and gnashing of teeth is just like, I'm a believer, but I'm not like in the kingdom, the central part, or I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know, man. Weeping and gnashing of teeth seems to be very indicative of a place that you don't want to be. And the gnashing of teeth, some have made out to be like, I'm in so much agony, but it seems to be like this rage. Like they, they gnash their teeth at Stephen and they go and stone him. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. When? When the wicked are removed. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You go down to the parable of the net. I'm not skipping the other ones because like, they're not one fluid thought. I'm just trying to get to this one. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, sorted the good, good tree, good confession, good seed, or good, good soil, right? Sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Bad tree, bad soil, bad confession, bad heart. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. But guess what? They're recognizable while they're on earth. Is that merely the confession only? And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay? If that does not convince you that a fruitless one, a barren one, versus a fruitful one is an unbeliever versus a believer, we will keep trying. I'm going to work with you, man. Matthew 21, 34. Okay? Here we have the parable of the tenants. I'm specifically addressing the parables that have to do with the separating and the fruit. Because is that not what we see in John 15? They're separated. Fruitless branches are taken, burned up, taken away. So far, what's taken away is what doesn't belong in God's world. 
being unbelievers, wicked. Now, here's the parable of the tenants. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it and dug a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants. He went into another country. This is Jesus leaving. And when the season for fruit drew near, so there's a season for fruit. When it was approaching, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Or at least, sorry, the, um, the owner of the vineyard who leased it is the father because the son's going to be sent. And the tenants took his servants, which, by the way, the owner leased it out to the tenants. Uh, and while they're you know, using it, he expects some fruit from what they're using. They don't own it. They're stewards. He owns it. Some of you need to hear that. Everything you have in your life, it's not yours. It belongs rightly to God. Your money, your kids, I say your, what you've been entrusted to, to, to manage. The possessions you have, the body you have, the health you've been given, the breath, the, the resources, the people in your, your children, your, your, your spouse, they don't belong to, those don't belong to, you're not the owner. You're one who stewards and manages. And that doesn't mean you're responsible still. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. These are Old Testament prophets being killed by the people of Israel. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. As they did, they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. This is why the, weak, the unbelieving generation of Jesus' day is more wicked than any, supposedly. More judgment, more accountability, more reason to believe. They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said, hey, look, there's the heir. Let's kill him. It sounds like Joseph's brothers conspiring to kill him. Look at Mr. Fancy Rope. Mr. Dream Dreams. Let's kill him. Right? We could have his inheritance. This is just such a repeating theme of the righteous one. People seeking their life. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. They threw him out of the vineyard he rightfully owned as the heir and killed him. Who does that sound like? Who was thrown out of Jerusalem, accused as a criminal, killed as, as, as a wicked individual, supposedly, and hung on a cross as a joke? Killed, taken out of his city. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what do you think he's going to do to those tenants? And they said, well, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death. This sounds a lot like David like condemning himself when the prophet Nathan goes, yeah, there was this guy, he took this, uh, da, da, and David goes, we should kill the man. And Nathan goes, that's you. Let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. What is it that the owner of the vineyard wanted? What did he want? What did he desire? Why did he let them have, you know, temporary management of the, of the vineyard? So that he could get some fruit. They could still manage. They could still, it was entrusted to them. They were tenants. But he said, I do expect fruit. Jesus said, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now watch. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. This has Romans 11 written all over it. This is the parable of the sower. This is Jeremiah 11. This is Isaiah 27. This is John 15. This is the branches who were in him, who had the physical ethnic connection to Jesus as Messiah, as they were the nation, and the kingdom they had taken from them. What they supposedly had taken from them. That amounts to nothing because they didn't give God fruit. So God goes, I'm going to give it to people who will just believe. No, he actually says producing its fruits. Not to say belief isn't the way into that and belief isn't what saves, but he's interested in the context of this parable. The reason he leases it out, gives it to tax collectors, sinners, Samaritans, Gentiles, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the overlooked, the people you wouldn't expect to be ruling in the kingdom. The reason Jesus gives them is because they'll produce fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken. And when it falls, it will crush him. And then they they respond by like, hey, let's kill him. (laughs) Doing exactly what he said in the parable. (laughs) Ironic. Super ironic. In Luke 13, verse 6. So far, what is God looking for? What do the wicked not produce? And what do the faithful, those who believe, end up producing? And I don't believe you can say so far that faith is the fruit. Faith seems to be the way or the method by which fruit is produced. Or fruit is the evidence of the supposed faith. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard. Lots of vineyards, lots of fig trees, lots of vines. He was looking for fruit. And you know what he found? None. That's why God removes the nation of Israel from the land in the exile. That's why God sends Rome in AD 70 to decimate the temple and destroy the city. That's why God sends Assyria to remove the Israelites from the land. That's why Babylon is sent in to remove Judah and Jerusalem, the people there, because he found no fruit. And in the time of Jesus, this generation is no different. He said to the vine dresser, hey, look for three years. I've come seeking fruit, man, on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? It's useless. It's fruitless. And he answered, sir, please let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Let me take care of it, man. If it should bear fruit next year, sweet. If not, cut it down. That has Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 3 written all over it. Those trees that don't bear good fruit are cut down. The axe is already laid at the root and cut down. Good Lord, you cannot, you cannot get around this. Jesus ends up cursing a fig tree in Matthew 21, 19. He saw a fig tree by the wayside. He went to it, found nothing, only leaves. And he said, may no fruit ever come from you again. This is symbolic of the kingdom being taken from the nation of Israel, unbelievers, mind you, who supposedly have the kingdom in their hand, it's right among them, it's right in their midst, and it's taken and given to a people producing its fruits. And the fig tree withered at once. The withering, the breaking off, the removal, the separation, the fire, it's all the same. When the disciples saw it, they said, whoa, let's make sure he always has food. (laughs) Then he'll go on to talk about faith. 
How'd the fig tree wither? Bruh. How's it? Really? Have faith. Matthew chapter 22. This is for me, the, I'm, this is the most convincing uh, evidence for fruit, man. This is the most, con like, I'm, I'm convincing myself. Because to be honest, throughout these studies I've been, and the messages I've been hearing, listening to people who are like, you know, faith doesn't necessarily, it's not guaranteed to produce any fruit in a person's life. You can be a believer and fruitless your whole life and barren and all this. And I'm just like, you know, that just does, for some reason, like I'm okay with being wrong. Like, believe me, I don't care either way. I just want to go, Lord, I want to be faithful and tell people what it means to be saved and what faith is and what it includes. And I dare not just hold on to my view and just didn't sit well. And every time I look at scripture, I go, I just see, even as they explain the scriptures, they're explaining it wrong. Like I just see wrong conclusions. Matthew 22, Jesus spoke to them in, in the parables. Now this is going to be a parable about a, a wedding feast, which I just read in Isaiah 27. God invites, oh, I love this, I want to read it. Sad me in tears yesterday. Don't judge me, I cry. Um, was it 28? No. Don't look at the screen, you'll get dizzy. Trust me. You keep him in perfect peace. Where's the feast? Ah, uh, uh, yes. It's right here, Isaiah 25. This is what will happen. This is what will happen in the future. It's coming. Hear me, it's coming. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, being Mount Zion, a feast of rich food. I love that. God has prepared a feast, a banquet of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain. He will swallow up the covering cast, the veil that's spread over every nation. What's that? It's death. God is going to swallow up death. He's going to invite us to a feast by which death is absolutely destroyed. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he'll take away from the earth. And the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There's a feast that God is inviting people to. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited, just like the parable in the tenants, just like we're going to see, um, what else? So far, just the parable of the tenants looking for fruit and they kill him. He went to call those who were invited. Israelite people who are aware, they know. They're invited, right? But they would not come. Is there a legitimate invitation for the Israelites? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
And he sent other servants saying, hey, tell those who were invited, look, I prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. This is, this is where grace comes in, okay? This is where righteousness comes in. This is where you understand you and I do nothing. Someone's asking in the, in the chat, I don't know how to work this question. What's the difference between a good believer, a good person? No one is good apart from Christ. But in Christ, everyone becomes, through their faith, good. Not just good, holy. We become blameless. We become righteous. We become the very identity of Christ as the first resurrected human. He extends to us. So no one is good except God alone. But look at what God has prepared. This is God doing all the work. This is God putting everything together. This is God planning it out and making provision. This is God saying, I've done everything. You do nothing. Just come. I'll provide the garments. I'll provide the food. I provide my son. I'll provide the feast and the wine and the security and the safety. Just come and enjoy. This is the invitation, man. I prepared it all. Everything is ready. Come. What does Jesus say? Come. What does John 6 say? Come. Come and eat. Come and drink. Come. Believe. Just have faith. But they paid no attention. They went off. Now I think you're about to see not just the, the three different, uh, I think you're about to see the different kinds of soils again. They paid no attention. One went to his farm. Another went to his business. The rest just killed the servants, man. Those are, this is the same gospel. This is the same gospel. There are some who come. There are some who don't come. Those are the two categories. There are some who believe. There are some who don't. But within the category of those who don't, some are busy with their farm. Some have a business. Some end up just killing, straight up killing the servants. So unbelievers are broken down into three categories again. Whereas the people that come are just the people that come. Jew and Gentile. The king was angry. Because they killed his servants. He sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers. He burned their city. And then he said to his servants, look, the wedding feast is ready. Those invited were not worthy. Why? They didn't give him his fruits. Parable of the tenants. Why? They didn't bear fruit. Matthew 13. It all comes together. No faith. No faith. Therefore, go to the main roads. Go invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. So those servants went out into the roads, gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So if you're like, who can come into the kingdom? You have to deny that you're good because you're not without him. And guess what? Everyone is bad. So anyone can come. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. Now, how did a person... Now, this, this fellow, Dante, is saying this is, he's saying this to Jews. In other words, it's just to the Jews. And yet the parable, like while you're saying that, the parable itself is involving Gentiles. I don't, I don't know what it... What does it have to do with this is just to the Jews? It doesn't mean it's not for us. When the king came in to look at the guest, so I'll say this, 
Is this mostly about wicked, rebellious, national Israel? Sure. Does that mean there's no one else who's wicked? No one else who's an unbeliever? Just the Israelites? Come on. Come on, buddy. Especially, go read Numbers 15. Marcus would like that. And he said, Fred, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? You know, I heard, at least, when kings would prepare banquets, they would provide the garments to the people who attended. This is a king who provides the wedding garment. This guy, though, if he's in there without a wedding garment, do you know what he did? He rejected. He denied the wedding garments. I don't, I don't need that. Hold on. To be here, you have to have the wedding garment. He was speechless. And the wedding garment, I promise you, for Jew and Gentile, whether this was originally just spoken to the Jews or not, Jew and Gentile can be clothed in the righteousness and the perfection of the Son. There's a garment that God has prepared for his people. There's a garment. Will you wear it? Will you trust in him? Very simply, to be clothed in the wedding garment of the wedding feast, or to have the righteousness of Jesus, you just need to believe. He was speechless, and then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness, and in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, few are chosen. Here's another, another parable explaining National Israel, the rebellious individuals within it, chose to reject the wedding garment or just to not come at all or to presume to come on their own self-righteousness and merit. Yes, this was written about the nation of Israel. Yes, this is given to Jews. That doesn't mean non-Jews and people in our modern day can't have the same heart mentality. Okay? The last one I want to look at is... Matthew 25. Parable of the talents, man. Every parable Jesus gives is commentary on what's coming for Israel should they not believe. For those who do believe, here's what happens. For those who don't believe, here's what happens. And that's going to be ultimately Israel is typified, unbelieving Israel nationally. They become an icon and a representation of all those who would not believe and reject the righteousness of Christ. So yeah, this is talking about Israel. It's not limited, limited to Israel. Okay. Matthew 25, parable of the talents. The kingdom will be like a man going on a journey. He called his servants and he entrusted to them his property. Now, usually, usually, the free grace extremist here, um, I've heard someone say this, um, by their teaching, that this, the very fact they're servants, implies these are believers. I beg to differ, and I think we've seen why. Israel nationally has the kingdom. Israel nationally has access, has the knowledge, has the awareness, has all the unique benefits. You know what they don't have? at least the unbelievers within national Israel, they don't have understanding or faith. Okay. To one he gave five 
talents, five talents. To another, he gave two. To another, he gave one. Now watch, each according to his ability. I think there's an underlying principle of wisdom within this, which is that God entrusts according to the ability of the individual, and God can even grow that opportunity and gives us more opportunity in the kingdom to come for sure. But contextually, this is referring to, I believe again, those who believe within Israel and those who do not. And eventually, the Gentiles, non-Jews, and the Samaritans who will believe or not believe as well. So this is not just, you know, Israelite unbelievers, Israelite believers. Ultimately, we're going to see that. We're going to see that extend to the Samaritans and the Gentiles too. So they, teach, they each are given according to their ability. Now, he went away. He who received the five went at once and traded with them. What do, you, what do you think this means? What's he implying? It's that he multiplied what he was given. Remember how we talked about parable of the sower? What you have, right? More will be given. But those who don't have, even what they have will be taken away. You're about to see that unfold in real time. So this guy, he traded, he multiplied, he produced. Because his master invested into him and expects a return on that investment. How much, that's not the question. How much is not the issue. Even if he like had just gotten one more, it's the fact that he increased that what he had produced more. He could only get more because he already had some. Do you, does that make sense? He could only get more because he currently had something to work with. If he didn't, right, then he couldn't have gotten more. So it requires having more. He made five talents more. He doubled it. So also, he who had two talents made two talents more, right? So these are two individuals who had something from the master. This is my, what you might say. He's giving the master his rightful fruit. He's producing with what he was given. He's multiplying the investment of the master. But he who received the one talent, what did he do? He dug it in the ground and he hid it. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. I love the rewarding nature of the master here, which ultimately reflects back to God. After a long time, the master came back, settled accounts. He who had five came forward and said, Master, you gave me five. Here's five more. His master said, My boy. Woo! Well done. Well done. You did it. He doesn't say only five. He doesn't say, well, I expected five. Just the fact that there's more. Well done. You've been faithful over a little. Faithfulness is doing something with what you have, working what's been invested in you, into you. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who had the two talents came forward and said, Master, you, you gave me two. I made two more. His master goes, Woo! Well done, good and faithful servant. My guy, my guy, you've been faithful over a little. Mm -mm -mm. He even admits, this was a little, but now you get much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who also received the one 
came forward, Master. I can imagine hands in the pockets looking down, not even looking at, at the eyes of the Master. I, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you don't sow, gathering where you scatter no seed. Why would, why would he bring this up? Why would Jesus emphasize this in the parable? Now remember, the Gospel of Matthew is coming to a close. So the way Matthew has organized his information, this is intentional. After all the parables and stories and, 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 and scriptures about fruit leading up to this, this is kind of closing it out. The master reaps where he sows, gathers where he scatters seed, but in the mind of this guy, he makes him out to be a tyrant, some abusive, like, just you take advantage and you don't even, like, you just earning all the stuff we're working for. So I was afraid and I hid your talent in the ground. I did nothing with it. It didn't produce. Here, have what's yours. This is like the seed being planted and then the seed is given back. The seed was supposed to go into good ground to produce fruit. His master said, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. In other words, he brings, he brings this against the man. He's going to work with what the, the servant thought about him. He's going to go, okay, you thought this about me? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him. Give it to him who has the ten. To everyone who has, more will be given. He will have an abundance. But from the one who doesn't have, what he has will be taken away. Cast that worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13. What did Jesus say? To you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. The understanding is given. To them, it's not. To the one who has, more will be given. He'll be given an abundance. To the one who doesn't have, understanding, right? A heart that's receptive to the truth of the gospel, to receive and believe, even what he has will be taken away. Your hand on the kingdom, your interaction with the truth, the degree to which you've encountered the truth, it's going to amount to nothing. Especially for the unbelieving Israelites. That's what's in mind here. So, when we go back to John 15, can we establish some things now? Can we establish some things? The branch being in Jesus does not mean this person was a believer. This is mainly referring to national Israel unbelievers, Israelite unbelievers that rejected, rebelled, did not want Jesus or his righteousness, did not give God his fruit, didn't fall on good soil. They had a degree of connection to the Messiah through their descent from Abraham, through all the benefits they had as a nation, but it's taken away along with them. They don't bear fruit. And I think we've seen, and we're going to see even more, fruitless equals no faith, period. It equals the wicked person. It equals the unbeliever. Fruitful equals the believer, the righteous, one who has faith. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear 
more fruit. And we've already talked about, we talked about this yesterday, so I'm not going to go all the way down and talk about the, we talked about there's two categories of people. Good fruit at its core results from faith. That's why in Matthew chapter 7, you're going to see the fruit of the confession. That's how you determine false prophets. That's why in Matthew 12, it's the fruit of the confession because it comes from the heart of faith. And part of the fruit faith produces is the confession. But confession itself is not the only kind of fruit. So we can say this, good fruit is guaranteed for those who abide. Look, whoever abides in me, he it is that bears much fruit. And we talked yesterday about abiding. There's two kinds of abiding. There is the, I am the once for all abiding in Christ through faith. And then there's the daily decision to actually work with, put to work what I've been given by my own daily decision intentionally to obey, to love, to do what God says. How much do I need to do to validate faith? That's not what we're talking about. It's just the fact that anyone who abides is a believer. The once for all believing positionally, spiritually in Christ. And then from that, there's the daily call to submit to the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. As someone who's secure, you know, abide and obey and love. And that's where the much fruit comes in. That's where the pruning comes in. So we can say this about good fruit. It's guaranteed for those who, who believe. But it's possible for believers that choose to abide. Meaning, in John 15 verse uh, 5, fruit is good fruit is guaranteed to those who abide, which is the condition. The decision to abide from that has potential for more fruit. The, the, the choice to obey and love and do what God has said, not to validate myself and feel secure, but because I am secure. Good fruit is something God is looking for. Can we agree on that? He desires it. In fact, he desired it so much, he took the kingdom from an entire nation that had a degree of connection to that. Good fruit is something God makes possible. Good fruit distinguishes a believer from a non-believer. And good fruit is something that has potential to become more as God prunes and as we, of our own free will, choose to partner with God. And so again, I've already established that abiding as believers is to do uh, what God has said, which is to obey. Now I'm abiding. Like, I am one who abides. Whether I consciously decide right now to obey God or do what He says, my condition is one of I am abiding in Jesus. I'm grafted into Christ. Okay, so the first category of people... Those who once for all, like believers, those who are abiding, because that's just their reality. Whether they're conscious of it or not, or trying, you are abiding. Because of the fact that you're in Christ, that's abiding. By your faith, that God, that you chose to believe, right? And it set into motion this life, eternity of abiding. Um, category one, once for all, this is like for all believers, anyone who's a, who is a abiding one. Good fruit is guaranteed. What God plans to do by his own grace, no matter what, through faith, that's been initiated. Meaning, I distinguished yesterday, there are some things God chooses to do no matter what. No matter who gets in the way, he'll move them. No matter what you try, you can't push against it. You can't stop it. There are some things God has decided unstoppable. There are some things God has decided, hey, I will only do that with your partnership and your obedience. And it doesn't have to happen for my ultimate plan to happen. Like those things are happening no matter what. And I believe 
the kind of good fruit described in John 15 is what God plans to do no matter what through the faith that's been initiated in his people. When I believe I've set into motion a life of however God wants to work it out, whatever degree, however much, that's on him, but it's going to be a life that produces some degree of good fruit, a measure of good fruit. People often want to disprove that by asking how much. That doesn't disprove it. That doesn't even, I don't even think that's necessary. Because you're asking, how do I, I need to know I'm saved. I know I'm saved because God said I believe. That if I believe, I'm good. And we'll talk about the character and the spirit Monday. So this is the good fruit in John 15 verse 2. This is what happens, whether I'm conscious of it or not, there's good fruit being produced even if it's micro, even if it's little, even if it's like just, just good fruit will be produced in the life of a believer, period. The other side, this is the, this is the difference between being in the light and walking in the light. The other side is the sanctification or the good fruit that will happen by my own decision to obey and love and follow and surrender and do what God has said. That's the sanctification side of things when it comes to my decision to partner with God. That's what I believe is the much fruit in John 15, 5 and verse 7, right? So that's what's going to happen through my free will decision to abide in Christ or walk in the light. So, so far, um, what we should look at is that in scripture, we're almost done kind of, not really, uh, on page 5 of 9. my gosh. There is the fruit of confession. There's the fruit of false prophets. There's the fruit of the life. And then there's the fruit of results. Okay. We're going to look at all those right now. Let me take you to Proverbs 18 verse 20 and 21. For the fruit of a man's mouth. Apologies from the fruit of a man's mouth. His stomach is satisfied. He's satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. I think this parallels to Matthew 12 and Matthew chapter 7 about the good trees that bear good fruit and the bad that produce bad. Matthew 15, he called to them, uh, the people to him, and he said, Look, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. This defiles a person. And then the disciples come and go, hey, Jesus, the Pharisees were offended. He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Parable of the wheat and tares, parable of the, the talents, parable of the fig tree, parable of the sower. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. What's Jesus saying? Essentially, this comes after the parable of the weeds and the wheat or the wheat and the tares. He's saying the Pharisees are the ones planted by the devil. <laughs> but Peter said, explain the parable to us. There's that, there's that Peter. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and it's expelled? What comes out of the mouth, that's what proceeds from the heart. That's what defiles a person, right? Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These 
are what defile a person. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So the kind of tree, either a believer or not, what comes out of the mouth, especially Matthew chapter 12, the confession about Christ is quite revealing. We pair this with Matthew chapter 7, and this is often where the lordship, salvation individual will assume this refers to the lifestyle. It doesn't say that. It says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. Meaning, and I've heard some free grace teachers say this, that because it's inwardly, but outwardly they, they're wearing sheep's clothing, this isn't talking about the lifestyle. Otherwise, you'd be able to recognize them. Now, I agree, but then their conclusion is, since this is not talking about the life, therefore, fruit can't be uh, referring to, or the life isn't uh, the fruit that's produced in the external life is not always indicative of the faith, lack of, or present. And I go, eh. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Every healthy tree bears good fruit. In other words, every good tree bears good fruit. The diseased tree bears bad fruit, just like Matthew 12. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. I believe most importantly here is referring to the false prophet's confession about Jesus, about God, about the gospel. Now, like I said, I agree with the idea that they're inwardly deceptive, but outwardly they appear to be something they're not. Can you fake a life? I think only for so long and only around certain people or in, I don't think you can fake a life indefinitely to everyone. Eventually you're going to break down and it be exposed. So I want to consider the fact that what is said here in Matthew 7, 21 through 23 is that these people say, Lord, Lord, they call him Lord. They confess him as Lord, but their life of lawlessness, working lawlessness proves they're not of him. And, and the most people who are proponents of like extreme free grace, they really want to hyper focus in look, they prophesied, they cast out demons. Look at the works they did. So clearly, the works aren't indicative of the faith. I'll read further. You workers of lawlessness. So yeah, Jesus is saying how they lived matter and is indicative of the fact that they have a false confession. By the fact that they also trusted in their own good works alongside living in sin. So they had moments of religion, moments of like good deeds. They trusted in that. But those were overshadowed by a life of lawlessness. So they don't know him. How? Because they trust in their own good works, not in him for righteousness. They stand on their own merits. And it's evidenced by the fact they work lawlessness. First John will go on to say sin is lawlessness. And then whoever does these words will be like a wise man. I mean, so there's a lot of doing. There's a lot of living, right? But I do believe when it comes to false prophets, as we'll see in Peter's writings, false and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, I've done a whole series on, on prophecy. Go watch the false prophets episode. False prophets have a lifestyle that accompanies them, not just a kind of confession about Jesus. So yes, uh, 
someone's life is very revealing, indicative, overall of where, like they're, they're overall the majority of their life. And this is where people go, well, how much is, how, how much is majority? How much is, stop. You know what I mean? No, I don't know what you mean. The majority of someone's life testifies to what they believe. Everyone lives out their beliefs. You can fake it for a while. Jude chapter 1, speaking of false believers, watch this. Watch how false believers are characterized. He says, woe to them, or false prophets, rather. These are false prophets, which I guess are unbelievers, yeah. They walked in the way of Cain. I've heard some free grace extremists say that false prophets are saved. And I'm like, they've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. Sound like a believer? These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Now watch how they're, they're defined. They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. In other words, false shepherds, like in the Old Testament. False prophets, false priests, like we see in the Old Testament. Waterless clouds, swept along by the winds. Fruitless trees, twice dead, uprooted. And yes, I'm going to focus in on this language because of how much we've seen about the fruitless, barren state of national Israel who didn't believe. And what God does to the barren, fruitless individuals who follow in their stead. They're, fruit, they're characterized as fruitless. Why would he throw that in? If fruitlessness was something a believer could be characterized by, because this is the extremist free grace view. You can be a believer and be fruitless your whole life. Then why is fruitlessness characterizing false prophets? Why, why, why not leave that out? Because that's confusing. They're called fruitless, which is validating of and proving the, the nature of their false confession or unbelief or whatever it is. Wild waves of the sea, casting up foam. And if you're like, these aren't unbelievers. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Well, I don't know. Uh, if you go on to read about the, the judgment coming on them or prior to this, um, the punishment of eternal fire reserved for them, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Doesn't sound like a believer to me. So, yeah. Fruitlessness characterizes the unbeliever. Fruitfulness characterizes the believer. And I'm praying for you guys as I'm saying this because I know some people are going to walk away feeling condemned. I, I don't decide your reaction to the biblical truth. I don't I can't I wish I could control that. I wish I could be like I control and make sure you don't feel a sense of false condemnation or shame. The enemy knows how to work through it. even hearing the word of God, the enemy can manipulate and twist and, and cause the flesh to rise up. I'm praying it again praying against that and I'm I'm gonna ask you guys to pray for those individuals who are soft and vulnerable and really just hurting and they hear this and it kills them kills them inside to not know if they have enough fruit and help like pray for them pray for them uh this is going to be a fast potty break i know you guys know the commercial just de just deal with it okay just be reminded of how the family on discord is awesome and join it i gotta go pee 
If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338, uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly so you can actually know what the foundational truth is and then from there we discover what our purpose is what our process is and what our position is now in Christ so if you are a new believer or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church I would grab a copy and if you haven't already joined our online church get in that online church we have a lot of cool stuff happening events every single day pretty much Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community and the last thing is this if you haven't already checked out our podcast uh, we have podcasts on Spotify Apple Podcasts and everywhere else where you can get a podcast and pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Guys, I'm trying my best to make sure no one feels like they're not saved. I'm not trying to convince you you're not a believer. I just want you to think rightly about fruit. If you turn around with this data... And you go, and you look inwardly, how much do I need? You've missed it. You've missed it. This is not about what you can do. This is about what God guarantees he will do. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1, chapter 1, Psalm 1, verse 1 says. Okay, I want to read this. This is how the Psalms open, mind you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He delights in the revelation of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Guess what he is? Guess what the blessed man is? Well, he's like a tree. And everyone's a tree bearing some kind of fruit. So to make that clear, when I said false prophets or unbelievers are fruitless. I mean, when it comes to good fruit. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. That's what Jesus was looking for when he went to Israel, when he went to be among his people, when he went to curse the fig tree. He was looking for fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So the blessed man who trusts in the Lord, 
who looks to the Lord, who is fruitful, bears fruit in its season when appropriate, because we want to put all these human restrictions and conditions and measurements and go, how much, when, what should I expect? Let God bear fruit in its season. How about that? Can we agree that God knows the season by which good fruit is appropriate in my life? Let him work it out. Its leaf does not wither. It's not withering like the barren branches in John 15 or like all that we've seen up to this point, the wicked, the unrighteous, the unbelievers. He's blessed. He's blessed. Now, you pair that with Jeremiah 17. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. This is righteousness. Like, I, I trust in you for righteousness, God. I trust in you to get me into your kingdom. I, I trust in you to cover my sin, not me. That man is blessed. That man is blessed. Whose trust is the Lord. So I, when I am going through this, I'm not saying look at yourself. Look at your fruit. Look at what's being produced. Look at the life. Look at the action. I'm saying look at him. Because even as fruit is coming, that like it, it's like Jesus, when he calls Peter on the water, Peter's walking, he keeps his eyes on Jesus. The minute he looks around, everyone wants to focus on the fact that Peter looked at the storm. Aw, oh, man. No, the problem is he took his eyes off Jesus. It doesn't matter what he was looking at. It was the fact that it wasn't Christ. It could have been himself. So I'm telling you, as you walk with Jesus, as someone who's secure, as someone who trusts in you, as someone who's believing, know this. That even as good fruit's being produced, God doesn't say, hey, I'm producing all this so you can look at it. Keep looking at me. That's what he wants you to do. He says, keep looking at me. Even when fruit's coming, even when things are changing, even when there's ebbs and flows and seasons of life where you're like, I feel barren, I feel more fruitful. Don't focus on the level of fruit you're bearing or the level of fruitfulness you feel, or even your perception of how fruitful you are. Just look at him. Let the fruit come. And don't even focus on it. Look at him. He's like a tree planted by water, the person who trusts in the Lord, that sends out its roots by the stream and doesn't fear when the heat comes. Its leaves remain green. It doesn't cease to bear fruit. It's not anxious in the year of drought. This is some of you. You are anxious in the year of drought, meaning you are anxious when you don't see enough fruit that you think should be there. You are anxious when you don't see enough transformation or enough freedom from addiction or enough change in your life to, to really validate faith. You get anxious. You start to freak out. You start to discount all the moments God has validated you and, and proved that he's with you and given you assurance. You, you invalidate all that because there's a season of drought or there's a year of drought. I don't know. God bears fruit when he wants. And there are some things he'll do without my help because he doesn't need me. And there are some things he said, I want you to partner with me and I'll bear fruit through that. Don't get anxious. Don't get all spiritually insecure because you don't see the amount of fruit you think you should or because what your pastor said you should see. Stop with the how much should I see and look at him. It is that simple. It really is. Hebrews, eh, Jeremiah 17, verse 10. 
the Lord says, look, I search the heart. I test the mind. The Lord gives every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So the fruit that isn't, you know, ceasing to be produced, the fruit that's being produced right here is specifically actions, deeds. Because there are some who say, well, fruit's not talking about deeds or actions. It's always character. And, oh, it's character. Oh, it's actions. Oh, it's all the above. Jeremiah 21, 14. The Lord says, I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds. The punishment is not necessarily the fruit. Yes, the sin resulted in the consequence. Sure, they're reaping what they sowed. But the fruit here is their deeds, their sin. He says, I will kindle a fire. Here's judgment. In her forest, it shall devour all that is around her. So when I took you to Galatians 5, I want you to know Galatians mainly and of utmost importance is the character of Christ being produced in us. But that does not mean it has nothing to do with how I live and the activity of my life and how I talk and the decisions I make and how I interact with people. Character in Galatians 5, like Jesus, assumes interaction with people. Romans 6 when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now you can say this is positional righteousness. And this is talking about me being right with God. Hold on. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. What fruit were you getting at that time, from the things that you're now ashamed of. But now that you've been set free from sin, the penalty, the penalty, because Jesus has brought a sufficient payment. We've been set free from sin. We've become slaves of God. That's a good thing. Now watch. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification. In other words, being set free from sin, becoming righteous through faith, assumes, even guarantees, sanctification. Now you can say the fruit is what leads to sanctification, or the fruit is the sanctification. Either way, apparently, you can't have one without the other. Its end is eternal life. This is not saying, hey, be sanctified enough to gain life. This is, hey, someone who has eternal life, the whole path and journey towards Jesus, when we die and we stand before him, that whole journey towards him is going to be paved with sanctification. Varying levels, varying degrees, varying areas. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin are death. This actually is good English because death is a singular thing. But I know what you mean, the wages right here. So what you work for, if you're going to trust in yourself and not Christ, you're getting death. But if you trust in Jesus for a free gift, that's eternal life. And that eternal life 
apparently seems to bear the fruit of sanctification or what leads to it. So guess what? There is guaranteed a degree in every life according to God's plan for them and the role they play and the amount of fruit he wants to produce. There is a degree of sanctification that is expected and guaranteed in every believer's life. You know what? The, me in the flesh, my flesh, wants to get out of this. My flesh doesn't want to teach this. My flesh does not want to believe this. My flesh does not want this to be true. That faith will produce fruit. I don't know. It's just easier to say, you know what? Live how you want. You would just intellectually agree with a set of facts about a Messiah from Nazareth. You're good. You're good. And to be clear, we're not saying do anything to stay saved, maintain salvation, or even like do enough to prove your salvation. We're just saying what fruit is and how it happens. So, Colossians 1.10, talking about the gospel, we already talked about this. But he tells them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing. Bearing fruit in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay? And we know, um, is it down in verse? Maybe it's not here. Take you to Amos chapter 6. When's the last time you opened the good old book of Amos? Do horses run on rocks? Seems like we just dropped into like the middle of a movie here. Does one plow there with oxen? But you've turned justice into poison. And the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Is there fruit of righteousness? Meaning not fruit to become righteous, right? But fruit that is sourced in a heart of righteousness, right? I am righteous in the sight of God. I know this is Old Testament pre-Messiah, but the idea still stands. Sin is a verb, it's what you do. I hope you're quoting the old Disney Channel verb. Verb, it's what you do. Philippians 1.11. Remember those commercials? Disney Channel, man, used to be a different animal. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Watch. Okay? So that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You know what's great about this? Whatever fruit my righteousness in Christ is going to produce in my life, it's through Him. This is not putting the burden on you. It's quite the opposite. It's saying actually the burden's on Him. And he's a, he's a man of his word. Our God is faithful. He'll do what he says. He'll do what he says. And if he says he'll see it all the way through, if he says he'll secure you, if he says that he'll produce fruit through the righteousness you've inherited from Christ, if faith is guaranteed to produce an amount of good fruit, he promises to do it, he'll do it. So the John 15, bearing fruit is not like a struggle and a strain and a stress. It's a he will. And I get to enjoy him while he does. I get to enjoy. This is what 1 Corinthians says. God brings the growth. Some water, some, and of course that's relating to salvation, but I don't think it necessarily changes when we come to Christ. Either way, whatever's being produced in my life, God brings the growth. It's through him. You understand? That's why abiding guarantees fruit. If I today 
choose not to abide and obey and love God, that's fine. I'm still secure and I'm still abiding spiritually and positionally, right? But by not living in a way where I'm like leaning on him and relying on him and looking to him, I'll miss out on fruit he wants to produce in my life. Ephesians 5, 7 through 10. You convinced yet? Don't become partners with them who, the sons of disobedience. By the way, these aren't believers. Don't become partners with them. Can you partner with sons of disobedience? Sure. At one time, you were darkness. Whoa, 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 whoa. How dare you accuse me of being darkness? You were. You were. And now, you are light. Remember how I said being the light is different than walking the light? Okay, but they're connected. Now you are the light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. And here the extreme free grace individual comes in and says, this is optional, it's not guaranteed. It's a decision, it's a conscious decision you choose to make, but it's not guaranteed every believer will at all, in any degree, walk as children of light. This is a free will decision. God doesn't violate your free will. He doesn't make you do anything. He doesn't force you. We already talked about the new nature and everything about that in episode three. Go check that out. But it does say walk as children of light. Why? The fruit of life or light is found in all that is good and right and true. And here's the part where you and I come in. Try to discern what is pleasing to God. So here's the partnership. Here's where God works through me choosing to abide, choosing to follow him, choosing to walk by the spirit. There is fruit that is consistent with light. Light should produce the kind of fruit and it's good, it's right, and it's true. Now, if you are light, what kind of fruit should you expect? Come on. Luke 8, or Luke 3, 8. John the Baptist, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I'm just here to say, same thing is said in Matthew 3, 8, that there are fruits if you want to say repentance is changing mind, we already addressed this in episode two. Fine, I'll give you that. Fruit is, or repentance is changing mind. Okay? But that change of mind, that change of mind, seems to have an expected kind of fruit attached to it. There's an expectation. Repentance should, change of mind should, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So is repentance sufficient? Sure. Believe. Repent. But the fruit of one's life will be consistent with the repentance they claim to have. And it will actually validate that. Because you can say, I believed. How do you know? I repented. How do you know? I changed my mind. How do you know? Because I know. I know as well as because I know I exist. Acts 2620. King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. This is Paul recounting what happened when he got knocked on his face, riding to uh, Damascus to kill Christians. He says, I, I wasn't disobedient, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles. That they should what? Why was Paul commissioned? 
What was he sent to do to the Gentiles? What was he telling them? He was telling them that they should repent and turn to God. Good. That's all you need to do. Yeah, to be saved. To be righteous. To get into the kingdom. But then apparently, performing deeds, to be very clear, in keeping with their repentance. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Not just John. Not just Jesus. Paul. Because Jesus commissioned Paul to do this. So, he goes, hey, repent and turn to God. There's salvation. Now, perform deeds in keeping with repentance. There's sanctification. But, the deeds are consistent with or validating the fact that they truly did repent and turn to God. Keeping with repentance. A change of mind should produce a change in action at some point. I know people don't like this because they've been manipulated and they've been hurt and they've been abused and the church has twisted scriptures like this to say you better and if you don't, all I'm saying is that all we need to do is believe, which is to repent, to turn to God. That's all we need to do to be saved. How do you know you believe? How do you know you've repented? How do you know you've turned to God and abandoned self-righteousness like legitimately? How do you know? There's, there will be deeds, works, actions that are kept with or produced from or validate repentance. Ooh, Leandra, I love what you did on the TikTok. Have you joined the Discord family? I didn't know you had that tool accessible to you. That's cool. Guys, this is awesome. He's not saying do this to stay saved or even to like, hey, do this to prove you're saved. He's just saying, hey, Go out and do what is consistent with your change of mind. He says nothing about making sure you truly are saved and validating it. He's not saying look for enough to really... He's saying just go out and do and enjoy. Change of mind is going to produce a kind of life. Romans 7.4 Likewise, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Jesus so that... You may belong to another, to him who raised you, has been raised from the dead. Why? Why have we died to the law through the sacrifice of Jesus to belong to God? Why? What does he want? Uh, I'll let you answer in the chat. Consistently, from what we've seen, what does God want? Why does God plant the gospel in a heart? We stop at, like, justification. And we so minimize sanctification, man. What does God want according to everything we've seen just in this episode? It's one word. By the way, I'm not talking about just the last 10 minutes. I'm talking about what is God looking for in Israel? What does he want? He wants fruit. Thank you, bandit. It's one word. In order that we may bear fruit for God. Well, that's not guaranteed, brother. Apparently, God looks down, plants the gospel in your heart. You respond in faith by your own free will decision. And God planted that for the purpose of fruit being produced in your life. Well, you can fail to do that and still be a believer. 
the fact that you want to do that or want to make permission for that is weird. It really is. It really is. God wants fruit. And there's all that, all that goes into that is like, like Marcus, relationship, belief, faith, knowing. It is just very weird. When I look at scripture and what God wants for the extreme free grace to come in, yeah, but you don't have to. No one said you have to do this to be saved. We're just saying that's what God wants in saving you and making you his own is that you would bear fruit. So I'm just, I'm asking, I'm not saying you have to. I'm saying why wouldn't you respond in love and give him what he desires? It's weird that you would make excuse for that, not being a necessity and go, don't add works to salvation, brother. Don't add works to faith. Don't add works to, I'm not adding works to anything. Just telling you why God reached down to bring you to himself so you could be with him so that he could ultimately bring us back to the garden and fulfill what Adam and Eve failed to do, which is to bear fruit and multiply. Well, that's just offspring, is it though? Filling the earth with image bearers of God? Ridiculous hoops to jump through, man. First John 4, 7 through 8. Beloved, let's love one another. Oh, I need to love now to be saved and to validate faith and to really compliment what Jesus has done. No, just love. Because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows him. If you know God and you're born of him, then you know the one who is love and you carry his love. So love is going to validate the fact you're born again. Oh, be careful with that, brother. You want to hold people under some expectation to make them want to just feel sad all the time and never measure up to the, the perfect standard of God's love. None of that applies. Measuring up to God's standard isn't a part of this. It's loving the way God does. And yes, there's a standard and a model to imitate, not to reach to stay saved or be saved. Love is something I get to enjoyably do. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. Oh, he's addressing Gnosticism. Okay. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. Gnostics. It's still a very universal statement because God is love. No love in your life ever? 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 You really know him? Yikes. This is not to put any kind of expectation on you walking around validating your faith and inspecting your fruit every day. Stop it. Enjoy God and what he wants to do in your life and just know this is the reality of what he will do. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is planted or sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay, so the true wisdom from above, as opposed to demonic wisdom, is going to bear all this stuff have these characteristics. When you operate in the, in the leading of the Spirit and you walk according to the Spirit, I'll tell you, part of that is that there will be good fruits. Okay? Let's do this real quick. This is very important. We're going to look at Galatians. Then I'm going to look at two verses that they often use to prove that believers can be fruitless. Galatians 6 it says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Hey, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that's what he will reap. 
The one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. The one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life. Oh no, so I need to do stuff to earn eternal life? No. I think it's just a reality of faith versus trusting in self or living in sin. But also that, oops, I ended up copying. Let's just do this. Right here. He says, I say walk by the Spirit. And this is where the free grace extremist comes in and goes, yes, see, it's, it's your choice. It's not guaranteed. Sure, sure. Walk by the Spirit. That means there is the possibility of the believer to choose not to walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, here's a qualifier. Here's how you know you're walking by the Spirit. Not, not, not how you know you're saved. How you know you're walking by the Spirit. Well, you're not gratifying the desires of the flesh. You can't be like, hey guys, I'm walking by the Spirit today. Just drunk out of your mind, sleeping with everyone you look at. I'm just walking by the Spirit, man. He's leading me to go sleep with them, so I'll be right back. You're not walking by the Spirit, you weirdo. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Interesting. So I don't know if you have recognized this in your faith yet, but sometimes my flesh is really strong and I really want to do something. But then my spirit goes, no, you really don't want to do that. And I'm like, I want to, but I don't want to. I want to, but I don't want to. And then when it's like, I want to do the things of God, and my flesh is like, ah, you don't want to do that. And I'm like, yeah, maybe I don't. No, I do. Come on. There's just this constant pull and tension. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. So here's the fruits we mainly are talking about. When you walk by the Spirit, here's the evidence you'll see in your life of walking by the Spirit. This is the fruit He produces when you choose to submit to Him. Or here's the way to actually walk by the Spirit. Either way works, okay? Either way, this is the way of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, right? So this doesn't mean if in this moment I don't have either of these things or, I, or I'm lacking one of these things in one moment, I'm not a believer. No, it just means you're not walking by the Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit is that as you submit to His leading and do what He wants, you'll see these things produced in your life. At the same time, these are clear indicators of what it means to walk by the Spirit. I'm not walking by the Spirit when I'm not loving people. And I'm like, I hate you, I want to kill you, but I'm walking by the Spirit today. Or when I'm exercising no self-control and I'm like, ooh, I'm going to give into this addiction, but I'm walking by the Spirit. It's like, no, actually, here are some qualifiers so you know if you're walking by the Spirit. This is the fruit God wants to bear in your life. The problem is everyone wants to make it weird and like, well, how much should I expect if this is guaranteed in the life of a believer? And I'm, I'm not even guaranteed to walk by the Spirit. I'm not even guaranteed to... So, you're telling me at no point in a believer's life are they guaranteed to ever walk by the Spirit or submit to the Spirit or do what the Spirit wants. Someone who claims to believe and is a believer can spend like 80 years of their life according to everything we've seen in the last five episodes. They can spend their whole 80 years on this earth never once walking by the Spirit, submitting to the Spirit or seeing the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Think about that. Think about everything we just talked about. So far, I would venture to say 
that doesn't seem to be a legitimate possibility. Oh. Have you joined the Armed Discord family? Um, let me give you some other scriptures to look at as a result. Like, this is fruit that results from action. Like, when I do something, here's what I, sh here's what I should expect. When I sow, here's what I should expect to reap. That kind of fruit, uh, which is cause-effect relationship. Okay. Isaiah 3.10, Isaiah 11.1, Isaiah 27.6, Psalm 104.13, Psalm 128.2, Proverbs 8.19, Proverbs 1.31, Proverbs 11.30, Proverbs 12.12. Proverbs is the bulk of it. It's like telling you, be careful what you sow. Philippians 4.17, Hebrews 12.11, Something to note here is I'm not saying the degree to which you walk by the Spirit is indicative of whether you have genuine faith. Again, there's no degrees, there's no measurement, there's no, and that's not a problem. Because I'm not looking at any measurement to know I'm saved. We're just saying what will happen with faith is that fruit, however God wants to produce that, to what degree, how much, when, seasons of whatever, that's up to Him. It's up to Him. Thank you, Mike. For that gift. You guys are awesome. Just give as the Lord leads. And you do. It wows me that God provides. Thank you, thank you. Here are some rebuttal verses often we get. Okay. After everything we've seen, and th these are literally like two scriptures. Two out of the... 50 I've shown you. <laughs> There's two where they're like, well, a believer can be fruitless. I think unfruitful is different than fruitless. Think about it. That just came to me. And I'm actually wanting to validate that. I didn't think about this. I think God is answering my prayers. Thank you, Lord. Let me look this up real quick, just to be clear. One, verse eight. Because remember we read in Jude that false or unbelievers are fruitless. So, just for fun, I don't know if this is a legitimate connection or not, but it just came to me. Ah. Interesting. Ah. Interesting. Greek word used here in second or second Peter one being unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Okay, which I wouldn't, I won't say is the faith we've been given, but it can be translated unfruitful. It can be translated barren, and it can be translated uh, unprofitable. Okay. So the same Greek word is used here as we saw in Jude, right, where it's translated fruitless. 
Ah, yes, this is different. That's what I thought. Unfruitful, because this is the scripture that extreme free gracers want to use to be like, see, believers can be fruitless their whole life and still be totally secure. I'm not saying they can't be fruitless for seasons or for moments or for periods and just saying your whole life, man, according to what we've seen, really? This is real-time study, okay? Mmm. Mm-mm-mm. Hmm. This is all coming to me right now. Ephesians 5.11. Ah. Huh. Very interesting. Okay. That's funny. Okay. There are a few thoughts that have come to me already. Let's just read the scripture. Peter says, look, knowledge, virtue. He says, look, this, re this very reason, make every effort to supplement to your faith. So he's talking to believers. That's the argument here. That free grace individuals who, he's talking to believers, so he's saying they can be unfruitful. Ha, <laughs> got him. And they walk away and I'm like, hmm, I don't know why that just doesn't sit well with me. Make every effort to add virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, affection, with love. These qualities, if they are yours and are increasing, which we saw in uh, Colossians chapter 1, the, the gospel was bearing fruit and increasing. Those were the two different things that were happening. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. So a few things to, to mention. This is awesome, okay. The word used in Jude 1.12, this word right here, they're fruitless. It means barren, without any fruit, okay. The only, it's the only place it's used like that. Now, the way it's used here, same Greek word, Greek word is akarpos. Akarpos. Unfruitful. Same word in the Greek, different word in English. It means not yielding what it should yield. Meaning, there is a standard that it should be meeting, but it's not. Now, hold on. Before the free grace individual steps in and goes, yes, see, God wants fruit. That doesn't mean a believer will ever bear fruit. See, you cannot meet his standard. Hold on. Ephesians 5.11 speaks of the unfruitful works of darkness, meaning unprofitable, unhelpful, useless. Okay. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 14, same word. He says, if I pray in, the, in a tongue, uh, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Same word. So there's a not yielding what it should be yielding. Same thing is said in Titus 3.14, which is the other scripture they like to bring up. Meaning this. This word right here, to be unfruitful, it's uh, these qualities, if they're yours, and are increasing. Not just possessing them, but having them increasing, they keep you from being 
ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know this is a possibility because not every believer has these things, these qualities supplemented to their faith at every moment. So in a moment, I can choose to be unfruitful, right? With the knowledge that I have of Jesus. But unfruitful is not the same as fruitless. Meaning fruitless is speaking to the, the condition. Fruitless is speaking to the, the, the life of the thing. Throughout its existence, it is without fruit. Whereas unfruitful here is speaking to the moment-by-moment -moment decision to supplement my faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness. That's a moment-to-moment -moment decision. I don't do that every day. When I do, right, I end up being fruitful in the knowledge I have about Jesus. Whereas when I don't, oh, I'm unfruitful. But a believer is not fruitless without any fruit. This is a moment-to-moment -moment being improfitable or not useful. Just like we saw in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 14, 14. Now let me take you to Titus 3, 14. Does that make sense? It does to me. So I don't know if it does to you, but it does to me. It does to me. Mm -mm -mm. Joshua, thank you. I just saw that. And you're awesome. Thank you, guys. Community rallying around. And... <sighs> guys are a blessing. Let me take you to Titus 3. This is the other scripture that I like to bring up. So I don't think this says a believer can be without fruit. I believe that a believer in any given moment can choose to be unprofitable, uh, unfruitful, but not speaking to the life. Now you might say, well, technically the life is composed of decisions that you can choose to be fruitful or unfruitful. So if you consecutively choose to not walk by the spirit ever and never produce fruit in each given moment, then you are a fruitless. It doesn't say fruitless. Fruitless, that attribute applies to unbelievers. Unbelievers are fruitless. Believers bear fruit, but they're not always in every moment fruitful. Then you're speaking to like a perfect Christian. Wow, you're always fruitful in every minute. Every minute you always add to the faith you have, virtue, self-control. No, I, I sure don't. I'm a failure as regards to that, but I'm still secure. Because it's not about what I can or can't supplement or what I can or can't do. It's about what he's done for me. Titus 3.14 let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So what are the good, what's being said here? And this is the argument they'll put forth in James 2. James 2 is talking about, well, just a faith that's unprofitable, a faith that's unhelpful. Okay, let's use that same argument against you when it comes to your verses. I lovingly would like to make you think by your own logic and hold you to the same rules that you hold other people to James too and go, hey, that's not talking about uh, not having faith. That's talking about a faith that isn't profiting anyone. Okay, in Titus 3.14, I can play by that logic. Let our people learn. Does that mean they're guaranteed to learn? To devote themselves to good works, to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Unfruitful here is to not help a need that's right in front of me, not to solve or benefit a need right in front of me. The good works here are doing what benefits someone else's needs. So if I choose not to, in that moment, I'm being unfruitful. Does this mean you can, for the rest of your life as an unbeliever, always be unfruitful? Does it? So he's saying, hey, teach people to devote themselves to good works. What's the assumption? They need to learn how to do good. 
So this is where typically they'll say, well, if you have to learn it and it's not automatic, then every believer won't. Well, what if the way God guarantees his people do is that there's always teaching to supplement that? What if the word of God is sufficient to guarantee or to teach people what God has guaranteed? And that's part of the method by which he ensures, yeah, people, my people, will at some point, at some point throughout their life, they will see fruit. And the good works here in mind. So again, the same thing applies. Being unfruitful means not profiting someone, right, with a good work. With a good work. This speaks to, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. This is not speaking to the life-long existence of a person. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to say. Again, I believe these are referring to the, the moments throughout a believer's life of choosing not to be fruitful in situations. Not speaking to their existence as believers as one of fruitlessness. Again, it's not translated fruitless. I think that's intentional. You can even look it up in a Greek lexicon. The way Jude contextually uses that word is fundamentally different than the metaphorical kind that we see in um, these scriptures. Titus 3, 2 Peter 1. Even if, I don't know how you could get these passages to say that a believer can and forever, or can throughout their whole life be without good fruit. I don't know how you can get these passages to say it, but I do understand that a believer in any given moment can choose not to what? Obey, love, abide. And that doesn't speak to the fact you're not a believer. It just speaks to the fact that, oh, you need to learn how to do good works. And guess what? God will bring correction. There's so many ways God can ensure that certain things happen in the life of his people. There's just so many ways. So here are some rebuttals I usually receive. And even if those were those two things, the scriptures did, uh, kind of you could like get around it saying that, which I don't think you can. Marcus says, bring up Hebrews 5. Thought I already did that. Maybe I didn't. It says, by this time you ought to be teachers. Oh, there's an ought to, just because they're not. It doesn't mean they're guaranteed to be, but there is an ought to. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. I've gone through this. I've done a series on Hebrews. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. You don't, do you know what is required, at least when I look at this text, what's required for believers is to have their powers of discernment trained to distinguish good from evil. Personally, and we can get into this later, I don't believe Hebrews 5 is addressing or speaking of or directly to those who have faith in Messiah. But you can go and watch my, my series on Hebrews 5. Let me get into the, the rebuttals real quick. Usually what I hear is, hey, when I say, hey, is, is fruit expected in the life of every believer? I say yes. If someone asks me that or if I ask them, I say yes, I, I do believe it's expected. Um, then they'll turn around and go, oh, therefore it's required. And you're adding the good fruit to your faith. And I'm going, no, actually that's just the nature of faith is that it does produce fruit. You can't have one without the other. 
it will eventually produce fruit. And I'm not trusting in my fruit for that. I'm not looking to fruit. I'm just saying, yeah, I believe I'll see fruit, but I don't need to look at the fruit. I need to look at him. That's it. Fruit is guaranteed whether good or bad, right? So the question becomes, is good fruit guaranteed for believers? And if abiding is something believers are always doing, meaning spiritually, conditionally, in Christ, I'm abiding, whether consciously or not, but I can also consciously choose to abide as someone who's already abiding, right? The twofold justification, sanctification, then fruit is always guaranteed to some capacity. Is fruit merely possible or is it guaranteed and expected? And I say yes. It's guaranteed and expected because of the fact that it's possible. Go watch episode three. And then they go, is it, well, it's apart from your free will. You're saying God is forcing it. And he's not even, you're not even like doing it. And I go, no, it's not apart from my free will. I choose to believe, didn't I? Didn't I choose to believe? God responds with the fruit and whatever is necessary to produce that fruit in my life. He's, he's definitely sovereign and powerful enough. Once my faith initiates what I call the salvation process of I am saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. It's guaranteed by the grace of God, and part of that process and what faith initiates is that fruit throughout my life, how God wants, is guaranteed. So yes, it does involve your free will as you partner with him, but no, in some sense, because you're not always aware of what God is doing and how he's bearing fruit in your life through your initial decision to believe in that one moment you did. Now, when people go, how much fruit? They're usually looking for a universal, universal measurement, a standard. Well, how much? What does it look like? What's the bare minimum? And if I don't have that? But looking for a measurement that all fruit, that all believers are expected to, here's the bare minimum, or here's how much I should. That's like saying if I'm a true believer, then I'll play this role in the body and have these gifts and have this much knowledge when there's variety in all these things. Remember parable of the sower? Some 50-fold, some 60, or some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. There's variety in fruit. There's variety in the way God works with his people. There's variety in the roles we play and the gifts we're given. Caring about how much, I'll tell you this, I said this yesterday, I'm gonna say it again for those that didn't hear it. Just because I care about how I live, just because I care about the fruit being produced in my life doesn't equal trusting in works. To say that just because you care about how you live means you're trusting in your works, brother. No, it doesn't. So believers shouldn't care how they live? Well, you're secure either way, so I shouldn't care? Well, you should care. So caring doesn't equal trusting in. Caring about something doesn't mean I'm trusting in it. I care for my son. I don't trust in him for anything. Looking at my way of life, I don't look for it. I don't look for assurance. I don't. I don't look for like some sense of yes. I need to know I'm secure. I'm. I don't look at my way of life from a place of needing security or needing to validate faith. I look at my my life, knowing I'm secure, looking for areas that I can improve. I just want to improve, not because I'm insecure, not because I'm trying to sustain because I just want to give God more glory because I love him and because I'm secure, not to be secure. There's a difference between looking at my life to be secure versus looking at my life from a place of security. 
And then the other thing becomes, when did acknowledging fruit and good works in my life automatically mean that I'm now trusting in works instead of Christ? I can look at my life and the works and the fruit God is producing through me and be excited about it and not trust in it. So my questions to the extreme free grace individual are this. Can you find pride and even a sense of security in your own ability to reject self-righteousness and forsake all your own good deeds? Because they love emphasizing that. They love emphasizing the fact that I don't look to me, I look to him. I don't look to my own works, I look to him. I reject my self-righteousness and all my good works and I look to him alone. Okay. Can you do that to an extreme and unhealthy degree in which you begin to well up with pride as if to feel superior to others because you got it right? Can you do it in such a way where you're looking at yourself by focusing on your ability to deny, by focusing on your ability to turn away, by focusing on your ability to turn to Him? Can you, can you not also be focusing on you? Why well, believe in Him? I look to Him. I trust in Him. I deny this. Seems like you're also focused on your ability to do instead of just saying, He did it. Period. How do you know? Let me ask you this. For those who are like, I just believed and that's it. That's it. I don't need to look at good works. I don't need to look for fruit. Sure. Like we believe and we're righteous. But when you're like, I've, I've abandoned all self-righteousness. I look to him alone. I deny anything I bring. He's everything. Okay. How do you know you've really done that? When you say, I've denied my self-righteousness. Because you have to, in order to believe in Christ, that's what you have to do. You're saying, he makes me righteous. I don't do that on my own accord. So, how do you know you've done that? Like, what gives you assurance? What is it that convinces you, I have come to believe? I have turned from dead works and self-righteousness. I have turned to the living God. What convinces you and assures you of that? And then the question is like, how much wiggle room is there for a believer who unknowingly, inadvertently relies on self-righteous works at times for just a moment, and they have a thought about their good works saving them, how much wiggle room is there? How much do you have to deny self-righteousness? How much do you have to deny your own ability? You see how I can put the measurements back on you? Does it have to be 100% rejection? Or, 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 or does it have to be 100% of my own perceived morality that I'm rejecting? And if so, how do I know I'm actually at 100%? Hmm. So it sounds like the people who I've spoken to who are extreme free grace are just very good at overthinking their ability to turn to Christ and not look at their own life. It's almost like you become so obsessed with not looking at you, but you end up looking at you by focusing on not looking at you. I think it's very simple. Whether you're lordship or free grace, there is the human tendency to somehow make it about self, even when it involves turning to him, even when it involves talking about what he's done for you and you denied self and I bring nothing to the table, you somehow still make yourself the center of the equation. So if the lordship individual can overthink the work side of things, we all agree we repent and believe. 
free grace extremists, can you not overthink the same? Not good works, but the denial of any good works? The denial of anything that's... It's just weird, man. So I would say this, stop looking at how much you're not looking at yourself. Stop focusing on how much you're denying yourself to look at him or how much fruit you don't need to see or how much fruit you do see or how much you're not putting in. How, or I'll say it like this, stop focusing on how much confidence you're not putting in your flesh. Stop focusing on how much you're turning from your own self-righteousness. Well, I turned a lot like, well, how much is enough? How do you know you did that? How do you know you believed? How do you know you've repented? This is not at all me making you question where you stand. If, if, if that's what the Lord leads, sure. But I'm more getting you to think logically about your side, extreme free gracer, because you're always making the Lordship individual. And guess what? I, I'm not on either. I'm in between. And you're always putting it on the Lordship individual and making them kind of squirm and going, see, you need a measurement. And I go, well, you do too. You need to know you've really believed and repented. Well, I take God at his word. How do you know you've done that? Well, I believe. How do you know you've believed? I'm convinced. How do you know you're convinced? It just goes round and round and round. So I'm not here to defend lordship or even attack free grace or, or the other way around. I'm here to make both sides think. And it seems like the free grace position has done a fantastic job of making the lordship side of things think, at least those who want to listen. Either way, this is not about how much we can do or can't do or aren't doing or are focusing on not doing or how much we're choosing not to allow our works to leak into our faith. This is not about you. This is all about what he's done. Look to him. Stop overcomplicating it, please. For the sake of your own sanity and security and, and, and joy, stop looking at you and what you're not doing and where you're not and how much you don't need to be seeing and how much you've rejected self and, and self-righteousness. There's always the tendency to go back to these things. Stop and trust him. Just look at him. It's John 3. Anyone who, anyone who looks to the Son will be saved. And that's how you stay saved. It's because He secures you. Man, don't make it about you. Free grace individual extremists love to boast about how they don't make it about themselves when indirectly they're making it about themselves. Focus on Him, man. That's it. I have to get studying for next, the final session on this. Are you guys convinced that John 15 is indeed speaking of believers versus unbelievers, fruitful people versus unfruitful people, those who believe and those who don't, the righteous and the wicked? Do you see it? So is fruit a validating factor and evidence in faith being present? It always is. Point blank period. Well, the thief on the cross... My guy died right after he came to believe. We don't know what would have happened if you gave him a chance. We don't know what would have happened. But we say every, we see everyone in scripture. I could go list after, I could go through a huge list. I can go through a huge list of people who believed and the proof of that faith was an action. Just saying, faith is so much more than what most of the church thinks. So, I'm out of here, guys. I'm done overthinking. You're overthinking. You guys keep moving towards Jesus. And if I sounded rough, 
it's like a father heart trying to get you to come out of that sense of condemnation and, and unholy fear and it, it's crippling you. I want you out. I want you to enjoy him. Okay? That's why I do it. It's because I love you. All right?